2: I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me on this special 200th episode is the co-host with the most, Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, how can you trust a man who wears both a belt and suspenders? Also back with us this week is Mr. Josh Johnson. I feel handsome. This week, we're going to be looking at Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, released in 1968. The film was a follow-up to his Dollars trilogy and hailed by many as one of the best Westerns ever made. The film tells the story of four main characters, Harmonica, the man looking for justice in the dying West, Frank, a gunfighter whose reign is ending, Cheyenne, a bandit, and Jill, a former prostitute who has come to the West with the promise of a new life. So, Josh, as our guest this week, when did you first see Once Upon a Time? In the West, and what did you think? Well, I saw it fairly late in the game, I suspect, in
3: comparison to the two of you. Uh, I saw it when uh, Paramount first released it on DVD in uh, the early to mid 2000s. I had read a lot about the film, but had been uh, kind of waiting for the right opportunity to see it as a fan of the Man with No Name trilogy. So I bought the DVD the day it was released, uh, probably watched it within. A few days after that and was really blown away. I sort of thought I knew what to expect because I had seen the other Leone Westerns and was really taken aback by how it managed to synthesize what I loved about those films while still pushing it in a new direction. So I instantly became a fan from the moment that I saw the film.
1: I didn't see this until it was out on DVD, and it was probably three or four years ago. I picked up a copy at, uh, sadly, the now dearly departed Thomas video, and I had been a big fan of the Dollars trilogy, and have to say that everything outside of the Dollars trilogy seems to kind of not get as much attention in the popular imagination, and I think a lot of that is rested on the shoulders of Mr. Clint Eastwood, Um, but... You know, this one is definitely one that you should seek out if you're a fan of the Dollars films. Um, you know, and, and and just what he was doing there. It, it really kind of, as Josh was saying, synthesizes a lot of the ideas of what he was working on in terms of the, the Westerns. And I also find it kind of interesting um, all of these pulls that are from other films in some way. There's these references. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that as well in terms of uh, who wrote it and how they wrote it and what they were trying to do.
2: Before we even get going, I want to kind of throw out there that uh we will be getting into spoilers on this episode so if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in the West go out definitely seek this one out come on back and listen to us we will be uh we'll be here for you this is one of those movies where you, you got to see this this is one of those films where it's like yeah you really need to to see the movie especially to understand kind of what we're even talking about i i think but uh hopefully you'll be able to understand the conversation if You haven't seen the movie, and if you uh, don't care to rent it or buy it, this is a buy for me. I've actually bought this movie three times now, so uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. I caught this one... On VHS, the first time I was going through a real Clint Eastwood phase when I was working at a blockbuster video in uh, Wyandot, Michigan, going through the Clint Eastwood section. This was when Blockbuster still was wrongheadedly trying to put movies into different actor selections like that, and I was going through almost all of these films, really turning myself on to like Dirty Carrie, And when I got to the Dollars trilogy, it just completely blew the top off of my head. I had seen Yojimbo, loved Yojimbo, so to see this kind of Western reinterpretation of it and just to see this film, I mean, even to see these movies on VHS was just amazing. And then fortunately, I was able to see Once Upon a Time in the West on the big screen, again, less than optimal conditions, saw it at the State Theater in Ann Arbor, which is not necessarily my favorite theater, but anyway, seeing it 20, 30 feet, high and wide was just blew me away and this movie's been kind of on the top of my list as far as favorite films ever since let's get into the plot a little bit first and foremost i want to talk about the opening of the film the opening of the film i I think you could write like a couple term papers just on the opening of this movie i mean it has so much stuff going on with so little dialogue so many things kind of being layered into here you know rob you made reference to the polls that this movie has definitely seeing a lot of high noon in this opening scene
1: well not only that i mean where we want to talk about sort of where the Dollars trilogy brings us and what we get used to over those three films. Those openings are much more kinetic. There's uh, faster music, at least for the title sequences. There's sort of these um, I guess maybe homages is a way to say it to maybe someone like Saul Bass. Especially I'm thinking of, is it uh, Fistful of Dollars with the horses and and the shoot, you know, you see the the, the gun go off and then the credits come up and things like that. And in here it is, there's only like two lines of dialogue in 11 minutes. Um, and the first lines of dialogue are from the station agent who has to deal with these three guys who won't talk to him, who, thinks, who he thinks have shown up because they want train tickets. And he's very scared of them. And one's played by Woody Strode and the other two guys just have these amazing faces. And, they're there for something. We don't know why they're there. Uh, this is one of the the classics of, uh, I would say, Loney's setups is he will give you things and then there's like multiple level payoffs. But it, it takes a while. And this one, I'd have to say, Once Upon a Time in the West, takes longer than any other film that he's done. I think he's really brought the pacing down. I think part of it might have to do because he has so much money to play with in this film compared to the other, uh, especially the first two of the $3 films, and really just ratchets up the tension with the soundtrack instead of having music and a score. And it's my understanding that there was a score piece written for this, but they just it just didn't work. They instead go with the sound of the windmill outside, the dripping, the insects all of these things and then when that stuff fades out and there's no sound on the soundtrack it really gets your attention because you know something's going to happen
2: about those openings i mean the the Dollars trilogy most of them I'm, i mean i just rewatched good the bad and the ugly and that begins with that Marcone score and that famous you know the 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 score just coming up and roaring at you and just driving and having those animated credits and everything and this one yeah it's more of a symphony of uh noises and I love that like in the good the bad and the ugly during that opening scene you have the coyote who's kind of like doing that <laughs> kind of thing in the background <laughs> and in this there's the windmill kind of is giving us a little bit of uh, like the theme to it, a little bit. Uh, but it, you're right, it's all these like natural sounds just kind of amped up to, uh, so that they are just. For, at the fore of the soundtrack. And not only do we have Woody Strode, but we've got Jack Elam in here, who has been just an amazing face throughout so much of his career. I mean, I was, when I first saw this film, I was just like, oh, hey, it's the guy from the Apple Dumpling Gang. And he had been in so many other things as well. And then I think he was in a movie that they uh, had done on Mystery Science Theater. I remember Crow kind of impersonating Jack Elam with those great bug eyes and stuff. And the third third guy Al Moloch he's the guy whose face begins the good the bad and the ugly i mean we start off the the film proper with this beautiful you know western vista and moloch's face comes in taking it from an extreme long shot to an almost an extreme close up and he's the third gunfighter that we have waiting at the station and just these guys waiting around i mean you talk about a leisurely pace this film definitely has it but it just adds to the tension, man. Just the By the time that train finally shows up, it's just like, oh my God, what is going to happen?
3: So with the sequence, you have not only this departure in some way stylistically from the Dollars trilogy, but when these three men are dispatched, it actually sort of feels as though this is Leone sort of killing the Westerns he's known for and saying overtly, this is going to be something different. And uh, I remember after seeing the film, reading that uh, his original intention was to cast those three gunfighters as his three leads from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and make it even more overt than it is. And I like this way that he's uh, right up front, not only establishing something new, but calling your attention to the fact that it's something new, so that even if uh, you were you know, excited to see an Eleone film, you weren't going to be uh, taken aback When it shifts gears, it really uh, from the first moments is telling you we're going to go some interesting new places with
2: this. Yeah, and to me, by casting those three guys, I mean, Moloch, to me, is is kind of the, the three guys from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly all rolled into one, you know? He's that face from that previous film. So it's like, okay, goodbye to my past. Having Woody Strode in there, it's like, goodbye to John Ford. And Elam, same thing. He's been in a lot of Ford Westerns, a lot of other Westerns. It's like, adios to you as well. And here we've got... And I love this opening because the train comes in. The doors open up. These guys are already with their guns and everything. Nothing's happening. They're, the train starts to move out. They turn around, and they're walking away. And what sounds like the whistle of the train ends up being this harmonica, and that ends up being our main character is this character who has no name, a literal man with no name in this case, because the man with no name in the other films usually ended up with a name, whether it was a nickname like Blondie or he was called Joe, I think, in the first movie but this guy has no name and he just becomes known by as harmonica by that instrument that he plays and him just standing there with that harmonica just doing those couple notes back and forth so, like I said that plaintive wail of the, of the train as it goes away just uh, announcing himself again to the movie to the world is just such a wonderful, wonderful sight.
1: And I love his dialogue in here where they have this exchange back and forth between them about how many horses they need
2: you bring a horse for me
4: looks like we're (laughs) looks like we're shy one horse you brought
1: two, too many
2: This is one of the things that I never really realized until I was looking at this film again recently was that the guy who wrote the American Dialogue was Mickey Knox, who I know now has to have given his name to Mickey Knox of Mickey and Mallory fame from the Natural Born Killers movie. Never really made that connection before. But I know that Tarantino is a huge fan of this movie as well.
1: Well, I mean, when you look at Leone's films and you look at Tarantino's setups and things like that, you can tell that he was definitely influenced by not only this film, but I would say the Dollars trilogy in general.
2: Yeah, and definitely uh, Morricone scores, but we'll definitely be getting into that a little bit more as we go along. One of the things that I love about this opening is that brief exchange of dialogue and just how, again, how tense it is and everything. Thing. And then that we 've got the the showdown right there at the train station, and harmonica takes a bullet so i 've always been curious if harmonica maybe if he 's even still alive when this movie 's going on, if this is he 's like this avenging force to me as he 's going through this movie because he 's just there for Frank, he shows up at this. Uh, train platform, and he thinks that these guys, you know, he thinks that Elam might be Frank. No? Okay, well, did, you know, did you... Frank's Frank Send You kind of thing. You know, I, I'm here to see Frank, and we find out later on in the film who Frank is, how this uh, uh, meeting came to be and everything. But yeah, he gets shot in this opening, shot in the shoulder, I guess, so not a mortal wound, but it's always like, I wonder if he's kind of like um, Lee Marvin in Point Blank, where he's kind of more of like an avenging force than he is even a person, because really, the, a lot of the people in this film kind of transcend just the roles that they're playing, and they seem to be kind of like walking i don't want to say stereotypes but just like these bigger than life roles that we have, have have had in westerns for all these years i mean we've you know the the you, you always think of like the saloon owner and the prostitute and the gunfighter and the sheriff, and they've kind of boiled it down into these four main characters and then a couple minor ones as well.
1: Yeah, I would say that the various characters in here are not just characters that move the plot along, but I would see them all as symbolic of various stratas in society and various um ideas. And that was one of the things, and especially when I think about the Morton character and how, you know, you could say, okay, well he represents capitalism, but he's crippled. And he's like, you know, the money matters more than the bullet kind of thing. You know, this is what can stop those or this is what can get, you know, things done faster than that. And I like the fact that the guy who basically is the king of capitalism in here is this crippled man who, you know, is kind of falling apart.
2: He's the guy who's in charge, but he's also kind of got this protege of like the ultimate badass gunfighter and – he's uh, the gunfighter frank is chafing under this whole idea of you know the the desk being the replacement now for the gun what morton is doing is changing the west the west that frank has grown used to, the West that Harmonica has grown up in, that so many of these characters are used to, is going away. And it's going away because of the railroad, which plays such a central role in this film. But before we even jump into that, I want to talk about, I mean, because to me, the entrances of these characters are crucial. And just they're some of the the best scenes that we have in this film. So we go from Harmonica's entrance into this kind of, very nice quaint um, uh, house out in the middle of nowhere basically and we're meeting Mr. McBain and him and his family McBain this hard headed Irish guy and he's got his uh, three kids there with him apparently their mother passed away a couple months prior but he is very excited because uh, his new bride is coming in on the train and he's going to be sending one of his sons to go fetch her but before he can do that but again, this kind of force of nature, the whole world goes quiet a few times. And uh, finally, when it goes quiet, at one point, gunshots ring out and the McBain family, say for one, is slaughtered. And the way that we have these gunfighters coming out of the wilderness into the shot and the, the music. This is where the music finally comes into the film and the music that plays such a key role to this entire movie the music swells these guys come out the camera is spinning around them in one of those wonderful Leone movements and focuses right in on Frank or the person we'll know as Frank in just a few moments Henry Fonda who is just like you know the guy who everybody looked up to in very few movies where he played anything other than the most upright citizen you know played played freaking uh Abe Lincoln for god's sakes he was you know he's like between him and Jimmy Stewart it's like you can't get much more above board than than uh Henry Fonda and here he is playing completely against type as frank the gunfighter and just uh absolutely wonderful seeing him and then just to find out how cold-blooded he is within moments was just wonderful
1: and before that scene even takes place once again leone's use of sound in this scene also plays a big part because again we have all of these sounds layered in like in the first scene and then it all drops out again and they look around and they're like what's happening and then the massacre happens. So so the use of pulling out the soundtrack to get everyone's attention, to make them feel ill at ease and build that environment before, like you said, the score piece comes up and all of that stuff, I mean, is really effective.
2: And that they pull out the sound twice. I mean, they do that thing one time, and it's like, okay, what's going on here? And then it comes back in, and they're okay with things, but then when it happens the second time, it's just that great way, again, of Leone tripping up your expectations, and and just, uh, you know, he's such a master craftsman when it comes to the cinema here, it's just, you know, even like I said, the camera movement, going around, getting that close-up of Frank, and then that wonderful, you know, when, uh, again, this very sparse, dialogue and just every word really counts in this film that whole idea of what are we going to do with this one frank now that you've called me by name Henry fucking Fonda shooting this little kid is just amazing and cutting to the scream of the railroad as it comes in and introduces Jill. I mean, one thing after another with this film, the pacing of it, at least in this opening part, is absolutely you know, dead on. There are a couple parts later on where it's like. I can't believe he's getting away with this where Leone is doing these so long takes. There's one part where Jill the character who's, who's introduced next where she's looking at herself in a mirror and I wanted to like, you know, use a stopwatch and just see how long the shot was because I was like, this is going on forever. I mean, it's important to the film and everything, but I was like I can see where this would drive people crazy <laughs> if they were like expecting this rip-roaring Western. And it slows down a lot in, in quite a few places.
3: The film is, if nothing else, an attack on expectation. And you see that both in terms of it using Monument Valley, which Ford used for a particular type of Western, and even you know down to the almost meta casting of uh, Fonda – As the character of Frank, uh, we have certain expectations about what sort of character he embodies, and this is almost opposite of that. And that even uh, expresses itself formally in the film in terms of cinematography and the elaborate sound design that you guys have been talking about. One of the things that is really interesting about the film is because the dialogue is so sparse that you largely get to form impressions about the characters and about the environment through things like cinematography and sound because the characters are never going to express certain essential things to you directly. This
1: movie was made today. It would be 90 minutes. It like it's, it's not that the pacing is slow. To watch, it's not that, you know, you watch it and go, Oh my God, this is interminable because I've talked about this before where I can watch, you know, four hour film and it feels like 90 minutes. And I've watched a 90 hour, I've watched a 90 minute film and it feels like four hours. Here it's paced really well. The story works really well. It's very beautiful to look at. It moves. But if anyone tried to do this in a modern day, I mean, they would hack at least an hour out of this film because you wouldn't have the lead up into these scenes. Like, like I was saying in that opening, 11 minutes. If that was a modern film, it would start with him getting off the train. <laughs> it, would, you know, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't let you sit there that long because they think we all have ADD now.
3: If this was a modern film, not only would they hack 40 minutes out, but the 40 minutes they would hack out would be all of the favorite iconographic moments that we're talking about so fondly
2: right now. So we get to the introduction of Jill McBain, Claudia Cardinale, who, God, talk about faces. I mean, I could just look at this one woman all day long. She is just absolutely gorgeous, and those brown eyes just uh, absolutely captivating. She gets, comes into to town, gets off of the train, is looking for McBain, looking for somebody to pick her up, wearing the black dress and uh, hat that she wore the first time that they met and this is where we get really the introduction to the proper Western town. We have this uh, great scene of her going in, this hustle and bustle going on, very different than the train that we saw in the first part. We see this train pulling into a much more, quote-unquote, modern town, um, modern for what we're at in this timeline anyway, Um All of these people getting on and off the train, her getting off, kind of looking for somebody to pick her up. She goes into the rail station, and the beautiful shot, that the uh, crane shot going up past the window and showing us this western town that was basically built for the film. I mean, one of the most amazing sets that I've ever seen, just this whole idea of this – Western town built out in probably um, out in the wilds of Spain, knowing uh, the way that the Italians shot this stuff and her getting onto this uh, wagon and going out and then cutting to that Monument Valley stuff that that you were talking about, Josh, going into um, this uh, watering hole kind of thing. And I love the stage driver. How mad he is about the railroad, and that he's kind of signaling, you know, his feelings about this—that everything is too fast-paced now. He doesn't like this kind of stuff. He's basically like trying to run some of the railroad workers off of the uh, the the path that he's driving down. And uh, I mean, we're going to see that kind of stuff. Those ideas of what the rail is doing over and over again throughout this film, going into this little um, uh, middle of nowhere watering hole. Um, and I use watering hole very loosely because there is no water. I mean, that's one of the things that Jill really brings to the film is this whole idea of water. I mean, we got the drips of water on Woody Strode. We're going to have more mentions of water, but it seems like whenever Jill McBain is around, she's talking about water or people are talking about water. So she goes in, and this is apparently one of the scenes, Talk about things that were cut. This whole scene with Lionel Stander, who we heard so much of, from the blast silence episode this was gone and i don't get how this scene could be gone or, or maybe if they cut it in half or what because this is where we get the introduction to cheyenne and we have the meeting of cheyenne jill and harmonica all in one place and we have this wonderful exchange of cheyenne and harmonica in the way that the you know they're kind of these Two gunfighters squaring off and kind of having like this little, you know, pissing contest going on here. Cheyenne, who uh, is played by Jason Robards, coming in. And I love his entrance. Talk about sound design. I mean, the, his entrance is all done by sound. We don't see anything at all. We hear this gunfight going on outside of this watering hole. Just. Massive chaos happening and everything, and then he finally comes in, and that 's his introduction and Again, when he comes in, the music is what introduces him as well and he 's got his theme that plays against all of these other themes. I love this whole leap motif of of each character having their own soundtrack and when he comes in and you get that great leone close-up of his eyes as he's looking around seeing who's gonna you know step up if anybody unfortunately nobody does but yeah then he comes in and we get the introduction of who this character is and i love the revelation when he asks for the jug and starts to drink that he's wearing these cuffs
1: if i had to put sort of tonal qualities on the four musical introductions I would say that Frank and Harmonica are the more serious pieces. Cheyenne sort of, you know, it has this sort of um, horse trot, uh, saloon, piano kind of thing going on. His almost seems clownish or comedic to a certain extent. And then Claudia Cardinale's character of Jill is much more, in terms of a musical theme, um, I would say like warm and in that way Um, seems to be sort of the middle ground between the ultra serious and the, and the playful clownish aspect that I think that um, Morricone writes in the
3: four themes. One of the big challenges of the score for Morricone, I would venture to guess would be taking these four disparate themes that represent the four different characters and constructing them in a way where they have their own identity but can feel as though they exist in the same universe. And I think that's what makes this one of Morricone's very best scores, even if it's not often championed as such. Because unlike all of the other scores that he did, which required these incredible themes and wonderful music that he composed, the challenges inherent in uh, composing for Once Upon a Time in the West are, are very strong and very unique. Uh, For me, this immediately became probably my favorite of his Western scores because of just the level of complexity and variety of what he was forced to
2: do. Well, let's talk about Frank and harmonica's theme for just a brief moment here, because Frank's theme has this really rip-roaring electric guitar going on, but it almost always has that harmonica with it. I mean, to me, these guys, their fates are so tied together that their musical themes are almost always tied together. Even if you're watching Frank, you're hearing that wail of the harmonica almost all the time.
3: Yeah, in order for uh, Frank's theme... To sound complete and to have all the elements it needs, you need that underlying harmonica. And that's true of the characters as well. You know, these are characters that literally don't exist without each other on some level. They've sort of made each other and created these circumstances through force of existence.
2: I mean, yeah, you can't take Cheyenne's theme and Jill's theme and play those two together, it would just sound like a car wreck. (laughs) <laughs> and, and really it's only Frank and Harmonica that do go together. And it is such a nice way to have these characters be so individualized and, and just have them I don't want to say in their own movies because there are a lot of times um I mean there are there are movies that I've seen where you're just like, wow, this whole character can be cut out completely. And, you know, you could think to yourself, well, you know, Cheyenne is very much doing his own thing, but I love the way that he interacts. I mean I don't think that – and correct me if I'm wrong, guys – I don't think Cheyenne interacts with Frank directly at all during the film. I don't think so either. I think you're right about that, Mike. Cheyenne, though, he's crucial to the Jill and Harmonica story, but he's not in the Frank story. And I love the way that we have – because not only do we have these guys, but then we have, I would say, probably three other um, secondary characters that would be Mr. McBain – Who, um, you know, died right away And then we've got Mr. Morton Who Rob made mention of Who is kind of Frank's boss um, As much as Frank can have a boss He's the railroad baron, you know one of those guys, but luckily he's not the typical railroad baron. He's got a lot more going on to him. And then you have Wobbles, who is this kind of lackey. He's the only lackey that really has a name. And Wobbles is able to interact with these other characters. And Morton kind of interacts with the other characters. You never really see Morton and Jill at the same time. You see Wobbles interacting with Harmonica, a little bit with Cheyenne, and definitely with Frank. So it's interesting. Oh, and he interacts with Jill. I guess he's the the linchpin is wobbles is the way that he can go between all the different stories. He's there at the funeral. She talks to him at the laundry, all these kind of things. So it's nice the way that we have these secondary characters are the ones that kind of pull the story together even more. I mean, the four main and then the three others that kind of just draw the story in tight, like a fist. And, you know, to me, you can't cut out, even though they try to, you can't really cut out very much of this film with it making sense because there's a lot of things that are going on in here. And one of the things that I like is this whole idea of who knows what, when. And, you know, we have, like, at uh, the McBain funeral, like, that happens after this scene, we have this whole thing where they find a uh, piece of cloth and they figure, oh, well, this is Cheyenne's men. And Jill has just met Cheyenne in the previous scene. So had she not met him, it wouldn't have made much sense at all, you know, the, the reaction, or that, you know, she... Her reaction to him, if he had come later, wouldn't have necessarily had the same weight and everything so i like this whole idea of us knowing more than the characters a lot of times and there are times where the characters know more than we do and it's that whole balance back and forth and that to me is what really keeps once upon a time in the west interesting is when do we know more than the characters and when do the characters know more than we do
3: not to uh try to talk about it in terms that are perhaps loftier than leone intended but i think There's a kind of Shakespearean quality to Once Upon a Time in the West in that there are characters that inhabit different social spheres, and there are these sort of connecting characters that go between them. And characters that never directly interact with one another can still have a profound impact on the fates of these other people that they don't directly touch. And one of the things that's most interesting about Once Upon a Time in the West, like you mentioned, is that there are certain characters that are ahead of certain other characters – And at moments, the audience is ahead of everybody because it forces you to always be examining sort of where you're at in the piece and where the characters are at. It becomes more immersive because you are oftentimes uh, in the same scenario uh, as the characters and then other times uh, the awareness that you have creates the tension that propels the scene forward as you're sort of waiting for them to catch up. And the ability to shift back and forth between those two things seems like something that has been a part of the best literature
2: for hundreds of years where this movie gets its weight from is not only Leone and Donati who are listed as the uh, screenwriters of the film but then the guys who helped Leone come up with the story and that was Bernardo Bertolucci and Dario Argento and we've talked about Argento on this program before but we've talked about him as a director we haven't necessarily talked about him as a writer and what he was before he kind of became known as you know the Italian Hitchcock well i
1: mean both Bertolucci and Argento At this time we're film reviewers. So in a way, when I look at this film and how the script comes together and all of the things that are in there, it kind of reminds me of what – the guys in the French New Wave 10 years earlier were doing, in that they were all film reviewers, Godard and Truffaut and all of them and Chabrol, and they took all of these influences that they had from American film and then created their own, because they'd watched so many of them and written so much about them and dissected them. And that's why I think Once Upon a Time in the West is interesting, because you can tell that these guys watch a lot of Westerns and then recontextualized it. And made something that I think sits on the shelf with the best American westerns.
3: And when you look at their later works, it's interesting to note that while they may have both began as critics evaluating other films, once they began directing their own films, you know, Dario Argento was bringing sort of uh, artistic inclinations to genre fare, whereas Bertolucci uh, really was more reaching for the brass ring of trying to make these more elevated kind of art films. And I actually think you can see those two sensibilities at work in Once Upon a Time in the West, where there are these uh, really, really innovative approaches to genre, but also attempts to take genre and elevate it into something more grandiose or operatic. And that fits in with Leone's sensibilities as well. But I do think it's very easy to imagine the two minds that you would later see manifest in those other feature films as directors at work in this screenplay.
2: Yeah, to me, this is like getting, I don't know, Godard and Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Melville together, and them, you know, the three of them coming up with a film and Melville directing it. I mean, this was just like one of these weird moments in history where you have these two guys who are going to go on to be their own entities and so much, and them working with this guy who... I mean, he had been in the business for quite a few years, mostly as an assistant, as a, you know, like working on these films in the Italian film industry, working his way up and everything. He had directed, I think, Well, with the Dollars Trilogy and he did I think Colossus of Rhodes, and maybe one other film to this point I mean the guy hadn't directed, Leone hadn't directed that many films to this point but he knew his craft and he knew how to tell a story so to get those guys in one place doing this I mean is just fantastic it is really one of those lightning in a bottle kind of moments and it's funny because Bertolucci has gone on record saying oh yeah well we snuck in all these references, there are references that Leone doesn't even know and hearing that and then hearing stories of Leone in Monument Valley and being able to, you know, frame up every single shot from a John Ford Western. I'm just like, I wonder if he really if they really did try to, you know, if they really snuck anything past Leone because he had this encyclopedic knowledge of these westerns, probably on par with those guys, if not more, because that was his bread and butter was making these amazing westerns. Let's talk a little bit about Mr. Morton. His uh introduction is very fascinating to me in the way that he is he is the railroad. He is using a railroad car as his wheelchair. Basically he has uh Frank says at one point, he has tuberculosis of the bones. And I love the whole way that he is literally tied up in the rail. I mean, he has this, um, all these braces all over his body. He has rails in his rail car so he can walk from one place to another. And his whole dream is to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And he's got this, picture of the pacific ocean on his wall he stares at and we again with the soundtrack we hear the sound of the ocean come up when he looks at this at this painting and just the way that he literally embodies this this progress from one point to another and trying to make his way across the the country via the rail and having the tracks laid out for him and doing whatever it takes to get to his goal of the pacific ocean and i love that line from uh cheyenne where he talks about you know how easy it is to to uh track because he's got two shiny rails behind him like a snail you know it's just such a great image and just the the way that he is kind of training Frank and using Frank and if Frank is using him and the interplay between these characters, I mean Mr. Morton and Frank could be a movie unto themselves if they wanted to spin this off into something else because just the the dynamic between these two characters you know, Mr. Morton kind of being the, the new West and Frank being the old West, it just, I, I love the interplay between these two characters And
1: just the design in the train and his sort of you know, trying to use technology in order to be able to get around and deal with his, you know, maladies or whatever they may be. And I know this is probably kind of a stretch, but it has this real kind of like weird kind of steampunk esque thing going on where like I'm sure the kids who dress up for, you know, comics conventions or steampunk conventions could watch this movie and go, Wow, he's got some really cool stuff in that train.
2: Yeah, if he was wearing goggles, the outfit would be complete. But as it is, that kind of neck brace thing, almost like uh, Peter Lorre from Mad Love or whatever, just, you know, when he he goes out. And I love that he really only goes outside of the train, like, twice during the entire film. Uh, Apparently, the one time when he's having this kind of uh, conference with Frank later on, that scene ended up on the cutting room floor in one of the versions. So um, if you're going to go by that, he would really have only gone out of the train one time, uh, but he just feels so, he looks uncomfortable being outside of the uh, the, the train, and I like that uh, they even say at one point that he looks like a turtle outside of his shell, you know, yeah. just when he's outside of that, that modified rail car.
3: Well, I think you're actually onto something with the importance of uh, the design, almost in a steampunk way. I mean, what is essential about this character is that Power for him represents the ability to use technology to triumph over the limitations that nature has imposed upon him. If you have a broken or crippled body, you can transcend that by building a better one in a way. You know, the rail seems to represent for him the body that he no longer is capable of having. You know, it's difficult for him to move, but he can design something to move for him. And so I do think that, uh, it's, Representative somewhat of uh, the corruption of capitalism, but I think also he's just a fascinating human character in that he's strongly motivated by this uh, desire to overcompensate for the limitations that have been imposed on him.
2: I talked a little bit about the mysteries of the film, and I would say that there really are two main mysteries going on, and there's things uh, to the side. I mean, in a, how long is this movie? Two and a half hour long movie or more. 245. There's going to be a. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of subplots going on in this. But to me, the two biggies are Jill coming out to this place called Sweetwater, which is out in the middle of nowhere, and she is trying to figure out why the guy that she married, Mr. McBain, why he um, was promising her the world. Because coming out to this shithole, I mean, it's a beautiful house. It's overly large for the place that it's at what was going on why was the you know what was his motivation and when she's there searching around in the house and it comes across that little railway station thing and that's one of the mysteries is that finally as we go along throughout this film we're going to find out what his plan was, and his plan was that the rail was going to be coming right through, right past Sweetwater, and that it was the only place to have water um, within however many miles. And with the the steam trains at the time, water was absolutely crucial. Water is crucial to people. Water is crucial to the plot as well. But so that's one of the big mysteries is you know she's looking throughout the house she's looking for money she's looking for what what was his plan why you know what what did he have in store and then at one point the uh, all these supplies arrive I don't even think she's around at that point that's when Frank has kidnapped her I mean we do get a lot of you know the, the typical western tropes you know the the uh, the kidnapping of the uh, the heroine and all the, the rescue of her and all these kind of things but they're just played in such a different way that they – they don't feel like oh this is every other western that i've ever seen it takes so many things and just flips them on their head or in this case kind of on their side i mean talk about playing with uh with notions and everything the you would never get a love scene between the bad guy and the heroine and any other western that i can possibly think of a rape maybe but not a love scene and they not only do we have that but then the way that that scene starts off where it's on its uh where it looks like it's horizontal and it ends up being vertical, or might be opposite. I, I, sometimes I get those words mixed up. But just the way that they kind of subvert our expectations with that, too, that they're not standing up. They're laying down on this bed, and their whole interchange and everything, and basically he's telling her the whole time, like, oh, it's going to be such a shame when I kill you, you know? <laughs> so, So there's that mystery... And then the other mystery to uh, everybody involved is why is Harmonica trying to meet Frank? And it's a mystery not only to everybody watching, but it's a mystery to Frank, too. And this whole thing, he interacts with Harmonica a few times, and every time he does, he keeps asking him, who are you? And Harmonica will give different names of different men Frank has killed in the past. And it's just this whole idea of him coming back to haunt Frank. Frank might think that he's going to you know inherit this desk of mr morton's if mr morton passes away or if frank ends up killing him but he's never going to be able to escape his past and there's that whole idea of why is harmonica pursuing frank and um the way that that is kind of dealt out in little pieces throughout the the film is terrific as well and um you know one of the first times i had seen that kind of stuff done i mean they do it a little bit in um for a few dollars more that whole idea of like these blurry flashbacks and you know in, in for a few dollars more the sound is really distorted and it kind of plays with the uh, the sound from the uh, the watch and everything in that film but um, the way that they um, reveal what's going on with this character and I think that doesn't even happen until the first flashback which is only just really brief I don't even think that happens until like what an hour into the film when Harmonica and frank finally meet i mean it's just th- this movie really does take its time to get us places but then it's so satisfying when things actually do happen it's just like oh wow you know now now i know something is going to go down you know and it 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 never fails to satisfy
3: what comes to mind, actually, is the relationship between Harmonica and Frank. You touched upon it being similar to uh, For a Few Dollars More, and that's definitely what I had in mind when I watched this as well, that it seemed to be hearkening back to those moments where uh, the timepiece would be opened and that music would come on and we would get a little bit of a piece of the past. But uh, in this film... It really drags it out in a very different way, where on some level, I feel you probably know sort of what is going on between Harmonica and Frank. I mean, certainly you feel as though Harmonica must have been wronged in some way and is seeking revenge. So the details of it don't matter so much as uh, being lost in the mystery of not knowing those details. And I think that's something that is unique to this film in comparison to the other Leone Westerns, where even though the plot is more complex than it has been in the previous films, the plot is less what is propelling things. And it's really more the actually being lost in it, in the atmosphere, and the experience of moving through the story. I think this is the first time uh, in which style almost becomes substance for him.
2: Other than the opening scenes that I talked about, which are, you could call those action scenes. I mean, you don't necessarily get that many action scenes in this film. You don't get that many gunfights. I mean, there's the scene on the train with Cheyenne as he's rescuing Harmonica. Once Harmonica is caught by Frank, there's those openings I talked about. There's later on when um, Frank is in town. Uh, We have that piece and then we have the end and otherwise we're not getting a whole lot of like rip roar gunfights you know there's not a lot of whooping and uh you know riding out on your horse i mean there's a couple little pieces here but it's great you know to, once again hitting that sound thing that they even announce that gunfights are coming up or that there's going to be some gun action when harmonica talks about when you hear a strange
5: sound drop to the ground a sound like
2: what like that. And we get that scene echoed later on when uh, Jill says, you know, I think I'm about to hear that strange sound again. You know, and it's just nice that the soundtrack can be quiet enough where that cocking of a rifle can announce itself so loudly.
1: I mean, this film, I think, and maybe this is sort of characteristic of all of his work and I can see it in other people's work as well, is He's more interested in what leads up to the violence than usually the violence itself. It's sort of these standoffs, and like we'll probably get to in a bit, that last standoff. I mean, it just goes – it's interminable for most modern audiences because there's all of this stuff that goes on as the two guys are staring at each other, waiting to shoot each other down
2: almost as bad as, and I use bad in a, in a very different way here as the, um, the good, the bad and the ugly where you have those close ups of the eyes and going around and around to Van Cleef and Wallach and, and Eastwood and just that tension being built up and built up and the music just soaring and soaring. And, in the the end of once upon a time in the west you get those that Uh, dual push-in on Bronson's eyes and all the stuff that's going on with that, which just helps ratchet up that tension. And you have that music on top of it, the music that has been haunting us through the entire film. I mean, the ecstasy of gold and the the standoff music that happens in The Good, the Bad, the Ugly is not the theme that we're hearing throughout the entire thing, thing. It's not the Good, the Bad, the Ugly theme. And to hear the theme of harmonica and Frank coming together so powerfully in that, in that final gun down. I mean, that's just, it blows your socks off. And again, kind of going back to that mystery, we have that great scene, Morton, when he's playing poker with Frank's men, and Morton is just such a outsider to this world of these rough-and-tumble gunfighter guys, and he comes in and he introduces a new game to them, which is not the typical cards, it's this whole other thing where he is dealing out money, and basically you know, showing that his game is a lot better than the games they're used to uh, playing, and he ends up giving all these guys who work for Frank all of this money and basically says, you know, the rules of this game are easy. You just don't lose your head, and or you have to use your head, and – Sends them out to kill their own boss, sends them out to kill Frank, and we have that wonderful scene in town of Frank squaring off against his own men while harmonica watches from the side and basically narrates the whole thing and helps Frank out of the situation and again it's that whole thing of why the hell are you doing this you know we we know that you have something with Frank. what is it you know what what could what is motivating you and that great line of Jill's about, you know, you you could have killed him, you you know, this was your chance and he's like, I didn't let them kill him and that's something different, you know and I I just love that whole exchange and it's like, okay, something is still building and growing as this movie's moving along.
1: And another thing for me that builds and grows in terms of you see the Frank and Harmonica character come together you see the Cheyenne and Jill character come together and it's almost sort of this um, let's play house aspect between the Robards character and the Claudia Cardinale character. And it really builds very nicely. And you get the feeling that maybe he's done wandering and maybe he could settle down and there's certain sort of aspects of tenderness and things like that. And maybe this is, you know, this is allowing her to kind of show what she would have been like as as the wife, as, I guess, the, the, the new mother to these children at this place. And really that sort of interplay between them is very
2: interesting as well. Yeah. yeah, I love that whole thing where he's talking about Jill making coffee and that she makes coffee the way that his mother did, again, with the water thing. And then and then uh, Jill, when she first meets him, thinking that he's the murderer of her husband or and uh, that – she's like oh go ahead bring in your men you you know nobody's ever died from that and all i need is boiling water and i'll be the same as i ever was and just how strong of a character she is and that really it's almost like the movie is mellowing her out versus you know her needing to be stronger she's almost stronger than she needs to be at the beginning it's great that she is this strong female character who's being protected by these guys. She's being protected by Cheyenne and by Harmonica, but it's almost like she doesn't need to be. You know, if she had uh, a couple more years to, to get some better gunfighting skills, I think she could take care of herself. You know, and, and by the end of the film, she is taking care of herself. She is the mother of this new community, and I do like that whole idea of her and Cheyenne and when Cheyenne shows up and just these exchanges. It is beautiful to watch, and um, that's where Robards, to me, I mean, Robards Henry Fonda is a fantastic actor. I mean, everybody in this movie, I love Charles Bronson. Nobody can take anything away from Charles Bronson for me. But Robards, to me, is just, he's the most charismatic person and when he is on screen it just you know life is is coming through to me and his interactions with jill that's the moment where it's just like this is where the prime acting is you know the the rest of it is great acting as well it's mostly acting with the faces and everything but with him it's just the delivery of these lines and everything is just wonderful and especially towards the end when he's got other stuff going on and is interacting with jill while he is gut shot is just uh those little moments of pain that he exhibits while he's doing these you know normal things like shaving and everything just fantastic
1: you know one of the things about their interactions in here and this is related to another film that they were in together but robards was cut out of is I often look at these scenes and I think about Fitzgeraldo in that Robards was the original casting instead of Klaus Kinski. And then there was some problems that happened in both, um, Kinski and Mick Jagger had to leave the film and Herzog hires Klaus Kinski to basically reshoot the whole movie. And there has been some scenes that have come out in terms of, of Robards. And I think about what those scenes would have been like because the female lead in Fitzcarraldo is Claudia Cardinale. So 10 years later, so would have been interesting, uh, you know, to, to kind of watch this through the, the prism for me being a big Herzog fan and wondering kind of what that would have been like because they in that film, they are romantic interests.
3: Well, it's also interesting that you talk about how the Robard stuff is a little bit different from the other acting in the film. And I think part of that is when you're dealing with the characters of Frank and Harmonica. These are characters that almost become symbols or icons in a way, whereas Robards, as Cheyenne, is a much more human character, and he's playing the humanity of that character. And that dovetails nicely with your comments about Fitzcarraldo, because certainly Robards' approach to playing that role would be, again, to humanize this character and sort of take it down to what is essential and what is human about it. Whereas in a similar uh, way to Bronson or Fonda, Klaus Kinski, of course, is somebody who's always playing larger than life. And uh, Robards, for better or worse, doesn't even seem capable of that. You know, there's so much humanity in the way that he performs that uh, he can never fully be an icon. He's always immortal like the rest of us.
2: Yeah, there's that line that Frank and Harmonica, they have that exchange about, you know, men. And Harmonica, I think it is, says, you know, an ancient race. And it very much feels like. They are an ancient race. These two characters are these spirits of the West, and they have come out here to die, basically. And, you know, we never see Harmonica after he leaves, but we have this whole idea of he cannot fit in amongst the humans, as it were, (laughs) you know, and that whole thing that Robard says that he's got something inside of him, something to do with death, and he will not settle down with Claudia Cardinal. There is no living amongst people for this character. And basically, he had one reason to exist, and that was to exact revenge upon Frank. And once that happens, he has no more reason to even be around and he might as well just ride off into that sunset and just fade into nothingness because he is done. The west that they know is done. The railroad has come to Sweetwater and we are moving into a whole new era. Whether Mr. Morton makes it or not, I mean, Morton doesn't get his dream. He will never see the Pacific Ocean, but that railroad is still going to move and it is still going to make its way inexorably to the West, and that's it. Once it hits that water again, the West is over. The West, as we know, with the capital W, is over. Let's go ahead and and do the big spoiler. The uh, reason why Harmonica wanted to find Frank is that Harmonica was one of uh, Frank's victims, or at least his brother was one of Frank's victims. I love that whole idea. You know, I talked about the the names that he's giving to him. And when Frank is asking him, you know, what is your name? And he just says, you know, only at the point of dying, you know, that's the only time that he's going to reveal his name to Frank. And I like that we get everything through Bronson's point of view and I talked about those push-ins on Bronson's eyes during that final gunfight and we get these flashbacks we Go back to the flashbacks that we saw before that were so out of focus and now we realize that we see them in focus and it's Frank a younger version of Frank walking out of the west out of the, 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 the brush again and coming up we see him with this harmonica and puts this harmonica in this little kid's mouth and then we get the whole tableau of the little kid with the harmonica in his mouth this man standing on his shoulders and then we have this whole idea of you know once harmonica once the little kid gives out his brother's gonna die and to me i always seem to see like a little bit of a kick from the brother to harmonica kicking him out of the way like you know he shouldn't be responsible for this but just that you know he lived with that and with that harmonica for the rest of his life looking for frank just absolutely terrific
3: Yeah, in a way, it's almost as though these early scenes have set into motion uh, a a circle that will be completed, which is the climax of the film. Uh, The whole thing kind of proceeds with this sort of uh, effortless, uh, sealed fate quality, as though, you know, everything that's playing out is sort of inevitable. And the characters have free will to some degree, but they're trapped in this particular cycle that can't be escaped, and in that moment, we sort of understand the birth of that cycle that has been playing out.
2: Yeah, and I love talking about the acting and everything. The, the moment when Harmonica takes the harmonica that Frank gave him all those years ago and puts it into Frank's mouth during those last moments of Frank's life, and you get that recognition on Henry Fonda's face. Just subtle, but it's there, and you realize that he – has seen everything that we just saw. Basically he remembers this kid from all those years ago and that that finally caught up with him. That circle is now complete Uh, and talk about just wonderful acting. I mean, that is such a, a subtle thing, but he pulls it off perfectly. We are going to take a break and play an interview with the man who literally wrote the book on Sergio Leone, Sir Christopher Frayling after these brief, but important messages.
0: tired of the same old stuff Hollywood puts out week after week? You know, all those less than appealing remakes? Those films with over-the-top CG and no storyline? Well, we don't have to take it anymore thanks to the 2015 B-Movie Celebration.
4: Polyscope Media presents the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. In 2015, we're going to go back in time, back to 1985 to be exact. The 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration will feature the following films from this time period. Fright Night Malibu Express
0: the Last Dragon.
4: Invasion USA.
0: Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins.
4: Return of the Living Dead. Trencers. Reanimator.
0: Morons from Space. The Stuff. Life Force. Con 4. Damnation Alley. Better Off Dead. Godzilla 1985. Along with those 80's classics, we're going to showcase The Blob from 1958 and Death Race 2000 from 1975.
4: So pack those bags, recharge that flux capacitor, and join us for the 9th Annual B Movie Celebration on August 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2015 at the Brown County Playhouse in Nashville, Indiana.
0: For updated information on this event, bookmark the BeeMovieCelebration.com website using your favorite browser, and we promise to have you home back in time.
4: Titles mentioned in this promo are subject to change without notice.
0: The Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast is an official sponsor of the ninth annual B Movie Celebration.
6: Well, Gary, here we are. Somehow, uh, we made it through here.
2: What? Where?
6: Uh, we're, we're in the sequel, of course. Sequel? What sequel? Well, Sloppy Seconds, the movie sequel podcast. Come on, get with it.
4: Oh, that's right. Our podcast is exclusively about sequels, where the budget is bigger.
6: Well, we don't actually have a budget. Get away from her, you bitch!
1: But the action's more exciting? Uh,
6: I don't know much about an action.
1: Hey, you got a like? Sure, man. Allow me, scum.
6: The babes are hotter? Wait, there's babes involved? How about some
5: of this? So tasty and hard and firm that it just melts in your
6: mouth. The kills get gorier and more extreme? Uh, kills? Did we talk about this? This
1: <laughs> Oh,
4: uh, never mind. So Five Sloppy Seconds is the movie sequel podcast exclusively on the Horror
6: Network. Because when all other podcasts are through, we're already thinking about part two.
5: And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
2: How did you get interested in Sergio Leone's films?
7: Well, I saw A Fistful of Dollars in 1967 when it opened in Britain and I think in America as well. And all the critics detested it, you know. They they called it an excess western that it was too brutal, that the editing was too rhetorical, too too emphatic. And I went to see it and it just blew my head off. It was partly the style of it, the look, these Spanish landscapes and the stylish costumes and the stubble and you know that kind of visual style of the film partly the music which was so much more hip than elmer bernstein you know (laughs) i mean most american westerns were sort of school of composer aaron copeland uh, and and two of aaron copeland's pupils were elmer bernstein and uh, gerald morris who did the big country and elmer bernstein who did the magnificent seven and so there's this big symphonic kind of sound associated with the West, taking folk tunes and pumping them up. Well, this is something completely different. You know, here was a Fender Stratocaster guitar, uh, a chorus singing incomprehensible lyrics, uh, extraordinary natural sounds like whip cracks and bells and anvils and all this. And I just thought the music was so much more hip. It was it was like a pop revolution going on within the Western. And finally, you know, there was Clint Eastwood. I'd seen him in Rawhide for years. As this rather clean-shaven uh, Pat Boone-like character in a Czech shirt, uh, Rowdy Yates, the second lead in Rawhide, and here he was completely transformed—you know, darker complexion, stubble, cigar, poncho, much broader shoulders, and much more sort of, uh, much less words, but much more actions, and a mixture of all that. So, I, so it became a bit of a crusade to persuade people to take a second look at these films. and I honestly believe, certainly in England, I was the only critic at that time who was flying the flag for these films. Um, because then, in, in later in 67, we got uh, for a few dollars more. Whereas in Italy, they'd come out in, 60, in 64, 65, 66, with a year in between. In America and England, they came out in the same year so in sixty seven we get fiscal dollars hot on its heels three months later for, uh, for a few dollars more and then at the beginning of 1968 The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and I thought they got better and better and better as Leone got more confident in his style culminating in the, in the uh, duel at the end of the, the Good, The Bad and The Ugly where I mean it's just the most extraordinary sequence still copied by film schools all over the world as an example of editing sound and vision where It it almost takes the idea of the Western duel and turns it into like an abstract painting. You know, people just stand staring at each other for 10 minutes. It was absolutely amazing. And uh, Mariachi, Trumpet, and Morricone, etc. So it really became a kind of crusade, and I started writing about Leone in 68. Um, And and, and it went on from there. And I'm very gratified to say that uh, at that time, I was the only one marching in step. Now the whole world, uh, apart possibly from Italy... (laughs)
2: Uh, uh, agrees with me. It's one thing to like his films, to write about his films, but the dedication that you've shown to his work, what brought that on? Partly the politics.
7: I remember I, I went to America for the first time in my life in 1968 and I went to San Francisco on a Greyhound bus from New York and I saw an all-night showing of Fist uh, of Dollars for a Few Dollars More and the Good, the Bad and the Ugly where the The cinema, the sweet smell of success was wafting through the cinema, this being 1968. And an awful lot of people who uh, should have been drafted but weren't were sitting there. And there's a moment in um, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly where Clint Eastwood is watching a completely senseless battle in the American Civil War where both sides are massacring each other for no reason at all. And he says almost to camera, I've never seen so many men wasted so badly. And the entire cinema erupted in cheers. And it had never occurred to me really until that moment that films that started in Italy three years before had captured an extraordinary moment, actually, in American popular culture. You know, it's a time of Bob Dylan, the God on our side, times there are changing. Joseph Heller's Catch-22 about the pointlessness of aspects of the Second World War. And it's a moment where you know everyone's so ambivalent about the subject of war in Southeast Asia, but also looking historically, that I suddenly realised there's something politically very strong about these films. You know, that um, I read a book by Michael Herr called Dispatches. Michael Herr was the the, uh, a correspondent about uh, from Vietnam, but he also wrote the voiceover for Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. And there's a moment in that book, uh, Michael Herr's Dispatches, where the American troops stationed in Vietnam go to an open-air cinema and watch John Wayne's The Green Berets, And it is so remote from their experience of warfare that they think it's a comedy. They just roar with laughter throughout. And Michael Hurst says, you know, in a way that was the moment when the John Wayne approach to the Western died, you know, where it just no longer fitted the experience of the audience. And Something had to change and of course the Italians had moved in and they were the new Western. So all of that went went through my mind really in 1968 in San Francisco And uh, so that's partly why I got I got really interested Secondly, you know an awful lot was going on in Europe where people were taking American culture and sort of remixing it with the local I mean the Beatles were current so they're taking American rhythm and blues and turning it into a Liverpool sound I was collecting records by Django Reinhardt and uh, Stefan Grappelli, the great jazz musicians from Paris in the 1940s, the quintet of the Hot Club of France, and they'd taken an American art form, jazz, and Europeanized it, and in fact, you know, there was the, uh, uh, the guitarist's first name was Django, which was uh, the same as uh, one of the characters in the Spaghetti Westerns, this wandering gypsy figure, Django, played by Franco Nero. So, you know, it was one of those moments where I was really interested in what happens when American culture gets translated into Europe, and you get this hybrid, this sort of meeting between the local culture and America, and in this case, Italian Westerns. And that really did intrigue me. There was a lot of it about in the late 60s. You know, basically, popular culture is American, whether it's Hollywood or pop music or fashion. But uh, what happens when it hits other countries is people swallow it and make it their own. And that's what was going on with the Italian Western. So I, uh, that's another reason why I got really fascinated by them and decided to spend time. Thirdly, I couldn't find anything written about Leone anywhere, even in Italy, well, particularly in Italy. So I thought I've got to write my own, you know. And um, there was a wonderful moment, actually, um, when um, in the 1990s, uh, I went to the dedication of... Sergio Leone Street in Almeria in southern Spain, the location where he made most of his westerns. And um, his widow, Carla, walked over to me, put her arms around me, and said, You were the first to take my husband's work seriously, and uh, we'll always love you for that. And that was nice. It was also true. And so, you know, I just thought that this, this, this example of sort of Italy meets America, the Western meets European values, uh, the politics of being rather cynical about John Wayne-type Westerns, um, having a really hip attitude towards uh, Vietnam and all these other things, all of that came together. And I thought, well, there's much more to these films. And the more I saw them, the more I saw in them. Until I met Leone in 1982, and uh, he, too, was was very grateful, in a way. He said, it's so, so bizarre that an Englishman has you know spent all this time uh, studying my films when, in Italy, they don't do it at all. And he thought, this is very amusing. And I said, well, it's rather appropriate, actually, because the whole thing is so multinational. Anyway, that, that's why I got interested.
2: Do you think that being an Englishman helps give you kind of an outsider perspective on the Italian culture and the American culture?
7: Yeah, I think that there is something in that. You know, in fact... A lot of my favourite movies, Hollywood movies of the 70s and 80s, are outsiders. Uh, you know, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, or John Schlesinger's Midnight Cowboy, where Englishman in one case, ta- has a take on New York in Midnight Cowboy, and in, in Ridley Scott's case, on you know the, the future, the, the movie of the future city. And there's a particular kind of interest in someone from outside the system having a slightly different perspective, looking at it. I won't say it's fresher, but it's a different perspective. And uh, and I, I feel a bit the same way about, yes, uh, write, writing about film. You know, and all, there's a huge interest in the Western, in, in England. There still is, actually. I mean, Hollywood stopped making them. Uh, I, you could argue that uh, in Italy in the 1960s, the story began when Hollywood stopped making westerns in any quantity. So the Italians grow their own. You know, they love the western. They want more of them. They're not coming out of Hollywood anymore. So they decide to grow their own. And what we 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 love the wide open spaces. We love the um, the elemental quality of westerns. Goodies and baddies, black hats and white hats. But we also like. Uh, we're not too fond of the politics of some of the films. <laughs> and so we like the the way it looks and the way it feels and the way it sounds, but not necessarily. The way the story is told. So, um, you know, I think you get that in critical writing as well as in, in writings about Leone. And um, uh, yeah, the outside of you, I think, is quite important. I mean, bizarrely, some of the best books about the Western movie are written in England. Don't ask me why, but, uh, but they are.
2: One thing that I appreciate about the Italian Westerns is that there doesn't seem to be white hats and black hats. Everyone seems to be wearing a shade of gray.
7: No, they're all wearing gray hats, definitely. And you know, and and the great the great uh, gag in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is that they're all complete shits. You know, <laughs> that the good uh, is horrible to Eli Wallach, Tuco, and uh, you know, and, and when you see the subtitle on the screen, the good, it's usually at a moment where he's doing something particularly unpleasant. The bad is really bad. I mean, he he not only does he shoot people, he smacks women, he's horrible to everybody, and he's he's sort of particularly bad. And the ugly is the most attractive character in the movie. You you know, Eli Wallach is a fantastically attractive, so he swears mightily, he eats messily, he rushes around, he has this outrageous Mexican accent, but he's incredibly attractive as a figure. And in fact, uh, when they were making the film, uh, Eli Wallach got on so well with Leonie, they kept adding to the part, Adding little touches, little bits of business, and lines of dialogue. He completely dominates the movie. I think uh, Eli Wallach, and so he's not ugly at all. So uh, yeah, I think one thing the Italians did. Remember, they, you know that, that they when they started making westerns, it was the early 60s when you still had white hats and black hats in the states, and uh, and they decided that it isn't life isn't as simple as that. And you know, good people do bad things, and bad people do good things. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting to explore? that within a Western context. And in a way, that's what The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is about.
2: You're traveling around the United States in 1968, the same year that Once Upon a Time in the West comes out. What was your first experience with the film?
7: The $3 films got bad reviews and were very successful. Once Upon a Time in the West got bad reviews and wasn't successful. It sort of drifted into British cinemas in the cut version, you know, with 20 minutes missing from it. Because, you know, the original Italian cut had been shown to at Paramount, they'd had bad previews, and uh, they decided to cut 20 minutes out of it, which which made it slightly surreal. You know, you kept having characters who uh, treated each other as if they were long lost friends, and they'd never met before. Or uh, it always reminds me of, um, a famous line, when uh, somebody um, was going to uh, perform Wagner's Ring Cycle as an opera. You know, which goes on for hours and hours and hours, but in a cut version. And I think it was Shostakovich or, or somebody said, uh, "Look, if you cut Wagner's operas, you don't have a short opera. You have a long opera that's short in places." And that's what happened with Once Upon a Time in the West. It's a long movie with its own pace, which has it's short in places because it was cut in in in, in this uh, in this rather radical way. So I saw it. Um, I thought the opening sequence. I remember going to see it. It was in the afternoon actually in South London in 1968. And the, the reviews had said, we don't like Leone, And now he's trying to be arty. We like him even less. And, and I sat there and I watched the opening sequence of the three gunslingers sitting at the start, And I thought it was just blissful. It was, in a way, the, the apotheosis of Leone's style. You know, it's um, stretching time so it lasts forever. The way he does, the way he casts is so extraordinary. You know, there's Jack Elam, who appeared in High Noon. And he'd been the, the second baddie on the left in countless Westerns. And there he is in full face, you know, with, with his wall eye and the fly and all that. And there's Woody Strode, uh, John Ford's black actor, who'd never had close-ups like that in his whole career. In fact, when Woody Strode wrote his autobiography called Gold Dust, he says, you know, I may have been only on the screen for 10 minutes, but I had never had close-ups like that, you know, that people could really remember my face. And so that's, he brings John Ford, uh, Jeff Elam brings uh, High Noon to the table, Woody Strode brings uh, um, John Ford to the table, and the third of the Gunslingers is a Canadian actor called Al Mulock, who had been the face that opens The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. You know, The Good and bad, the Ugly begins with a landscape and this huge face comes into the screen and punctuates the the view. And that was, uh, was like a lucky charm. In fact, you know, Leonie was originally, he intended to cast um, Clint Eastwood Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach as the three gunslingers waiting at the station because he wanted to say goodbye to his more traditional approach to Italian Westerns by then, you know, and say this is going to be a different film. So he wanted to wipe out his three heroes <laughs> before the film even began. And according to Leone, um, Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach agreed but by then Clint Eastwood was too big and uh, it didn't work out. So instead he has a bit of high noon, a bit of John Ford and a bit of the good, the bad and the ugly. And I just thought the way that sequence was shot, um, you know, three gunfighters, the train, is too. unlike in high noon, but the train arrives dead on noon in this, it's two hours late. (laughs) So they've got to sit at the station killing time and all they want to do is shoot someone. That's all they're good at. So, the boredom of sitting at this station you get a, a water wheel that needs oiling and a fly that keeps buzzing and a uh, you know the, the, um, the tele- telegraph thing uh, chattering away and, all these, and the wind whistling and all, this, all these natural sounds and you feel you've lived with these people for two hours even though it's about ten minutes on the screen and this is the credit sequence you know I mean at the time it was the longest credit s- sequence in, in movie history I'm not sure it still isn't I mean it goes on forever And I just thought I'm going to really enjoy this movie. The first thing that struck me was that it was a kind of summary of the great moments from every Western I'd ever seen, that unlike um, the the Mediterranean atmosphere of the first three films, uh, here is a film made by someone who knew his Westerns backwards and wanted to take all the stock situations from the Hollywood Western. And turn them inside out. So you think you've seen them before. You know, here's three gunslingers at the station. Oh, it's going to be like high noon. The guy gets off the train and shoots all three of them. Well, it never happened like that last time. And and he does that over and over and over again. A little boy goes hunting, like the beginning of Shane. Uh, and uh, but instead of him being the hero of the movie, which he is in Shane, the little boy Brandon De Wilde, he gets shot. And everything is a surprise. You know, you have that sort of strange recognition. I've seen this before. I I know what's going to happen. Oh, God, I don't know what's going to happen. I found that really intriguing. You know, we'd all been watching Jean-Luc Godard films where his films are a sort of homage to Hollywood B-movies like Breathless. And we'd watch Chabrol films which were a homage to Hitchcock and Bertolucci's films were homage to a film noir in Hollywood, and here was someone who was doing a huge homage to the American Western whilst turning it in a new direction. I didn't know it at the time, but the music and image in that film was so well integrated. What I didn't realize was that it had all been written in advance. You know, Morricone wrote the score in advance. They recorded it with a small orchestra. They had it on an open reel tape recorder on the set so that every single cut in that movie was cut to the music like a three-hour rock video. And I just thought the integrate, I mean, there's a moment in Once Upon a Time in the West where Claudia Cardinale arrives at the station and she's standing at the station master's office and the crane goes up with the camera to reveal the burgeoning town beyond the station master's office. And there's a crescendo in the music that exactly matches the movement of the crane. And, you know, that had to have been written in advance or they had the music in their head because it's just so well integrated. And when I read that, I thought, God, it makes all the sense in the world. This is like a horse opera where the arias aren't sung, they're stared. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just complete integration of music and image. And obviously Morricone and Leone had got on very well. And what, what, you know, what that reminded me of was the great partnerships in movie history between director and composer, you know, Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann, uh, Fellini and Mino Rota, uh, John Barry and James Bond, uh, later, it hadn't happened yet, but you know, Spielberg and, and Williams, um, you know, these are very close relationships, and in a way, you can't imagine one without the other. Well, I think, in a way, Morricone and Leone were even closer because they, from the ground up, the movie project was built around the music. And all of that sort of hit me hard, and I started writing about Once My Time in the West in '69 in Time Out, uh, which is the uh, the London you know, a listings magazine, which in those days was a small format magazine. The very first thing I wrote for Time Art was all about Once Upon a Time in the West. And I thought, this is an amazing... I mean, the style as well, all those long canvas coats that they wear. You know, when uh, Once Upon a Time in the West opened in Paris, um, the department stores in the Rue Lafayette, where all these great Parisian uh, department stores are located, had in the window, this year, the style is Sergio Leone. (laughs) I mean, those long-waisted coats with a big pleat up the back. You know, this was sort of couture Western. I mean, extraordinary designer Western, in a way. Um, And as a Western buff, I got a lot of the references, not all of them. In fact, subsequently, I've researched the film, and I I found, I think, 34 explicit references to different Western movies in that film. And there's probably more, because, you know, uh, how it was made was, you know, Leone decided not to use his traditional scriptwriters on the Dollars films, like Luciano Vincenzoni and, uh, and Sergio Donati. So to start with, he worked with the young Bernardo Bertolucci and Dario Argento, who went on to make lots of great horror movies and thrillers, who was then a film critic. And they sat in Leone's flat in Rome and just watched wall-to-wall Westerns projected, 16 mil. And they decided, you know, to make this film an anthology of a celebration of, but also a kind of funeral dirge or the great Westerns they loved in their childhood that they don't make anymore. And, they, and I mean, Leonie said to me, you know, it, it, the title, Once Upon a Time in the West, it was a great title, I think, collides the fairy tale once upon a time with the real West, the arrival of the railroad. But it's also once upon a time they all went to see these movies when they were kids and absolutely loved them and were very nostalgic about them and felt the Western had taken a wrong turning in the mid-60s. It had become too sort of Freudian and talky. (laughs) There wasn't enough shooting. So, you know, that's another Once Upon a Time. And and also, uh, you know, Once Upon a Time, there was the Western. Once Upon a Time, we saw these movies. And Once Upon a Time, there was the West when, you know, these great heroes rode the range. And along came the capitalist boom in the form of the railroad barons and changed everything. So it's sort of once upon a time at various different levels. And they buffed each other into submission. And I did an interview with Argento where he remembered wearing a cowboy hat and buying a Colt 45 and standing in front of a mirror and then going straight off to the flat to talk movies with Leone and Bertolucci. And they just buffed each other for <laughs> for you know, about six weeks of reminding themselves of every Western they'd ever seen and then remixing them in the form of the story, and then they only went to his traditional scriptwriter Sergio Donati, who turned it into a screenplay. And um, it breathes the love of the western and an understanding of the western, while not quite buying what the western stood for—the traditional western. And uh, I think it's—I I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And what, what's interesting is, at the time, it was—you um, uh, know—the critics poured scorn on it. But subsequently, it now appears in lists of the 10 best Westerns of all time, for Christ's sake, you know. I mean, you know, you read all these books about the American Western, and everyone's now putting Once Upon a Time in the West uh, in in actually the top five of Westerns that have ever been made. So that's completely changed, I think. I mean, the other thing that that when I first saw it that struck me was, you know, I got used to this Spanish look, the dust and the olive trees and and these little villages with... um, you know adobe houses and all the rest of it and here was a shot in monument valley for goodness sake not only did he love john ford's films he actually went to john ford's location that was indelibly associated with ford i think ford had used it seven or eight times and has the great shot as the buggy goes through monument valley and goes past those great buttes those red sandstone buttes on the arizona utah border and then we're back in spain again and apparently. Leone got buckets of red sand <laughs> from Monument Valley so that when Jason Robards enters in this sort of way station in the middle of Monument Valley, uh, all this red dust follows him through the door as if he's come in from Monument Valley. Actually, he's in Spain, but, uh, you know, it matched very nicely. So that struck me. God, Leone's actually going to Ford Country to make a movie. And the shot only lasts about three minutes, but it was an amazing moment to actually see an Italian making a movie in Monument Valley. Since then, it's become a huge cliche, isn't it? I mean, everything from The Lone Ranger back to the future, everyone has to go to Monument Valley, but, but it was quite unusual then. If you weren't John Ford, you weren't allowed in, you know.
2: <laughs> what really impressed me is that you essentially have a good, a bad, and an ugly character, but you also have the addition of Jill, and she's such a wonderful character, and one that I would not expect to be in this film based on Leonie's track record.
7: Bertolucci claims that it was his contribution. Well, it was a mixture of uh, Bertolucci trying to persuade Leone to to make the the female character the centre of it and the fact that they all loved Johnny Guitar, Nicholas Ray's film of the early 50s, which has Joan Crawford as a similar character and, in fact, finishes up with a showdown between Joan Crawford and Mercedes McCambridge. You know, I think the only all-women gun duel in a major Western. And Leone was very, very taken with Johnny Guitar. In fact, he said that uh, Bronson's harmonica in Once Upon a Time in the West was Johnny's guitar, that it was a central movie in in, uh, inspiring Once Upon a Time in the West. So I think it was a mixture of Bertolucci being part of the party and and also... um, you know, wanting to to remix Joan Crawford really in, in 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 Johnny Guitar. But according to Bertolucci, when when they first suggested it, Leone <laughs> a rather typically Leonian reaction. He said, "I tell you what we'll do. I tell you what we'll do. We'll have Claudia Cardinale getting off the train, and we'll have the camera underneath the steps as she steps down from the train. And as she steps over the camera, she's not wearing any knickers." And Bertolucci said, "No, I don't think you can do that." <laughs> Sergio. But it was a rather typically Sergio Leone reaction to the suggestion that her entrance should be, he said, yeah, I want to define her sex immediately so we can see absolutely everything. Anyway, they didn't do that. But uh, Leone was persuaded and she's not only a female character, she's the pivot of the entire film. You know, the water bringer at the end for the uh, the rail gang. She remakes herself as a sort of New Orleans call girl into um, the spirit of the West, the water bringer of the West, you know, and uh, so yeah, the film makes no sense without her, and it's not just a sort of guest appearance. Uh, in fact, in uh, uh, a, a European posters for the film, Cardinale is the star, and the rest are underneath her. So you know, she is the central character in the movie. Yeah. I think it, it adds to the strength of the film no end.
2: I would think it was fairly radical to have Bertolucci and Argento working alongside Leone. Had they made films by this point? Bertolucci had made had made uh, one. But he
7: he and in fact he'd made an experimental film uh, with a theatre troupe initially, but he was having difficulty getting projects together, and Argento hadn't made any. He was a um, a, a critic for a Rome evening paper, and uh, uh, yeah, I think it, it was quite brave of Leone actually to cut loose from his sort of cinecittà p- professionals who'd worked on the the scriptwriters who'd worked on the Dollars films, and actually let's give it a go with these two youngsters who haven't really made their name yet and see what they can do with the Western. And, uh, that, and uh, you know, I think Once Upon a Time in the West, although it's recognizably the same style as the other films and how it feels very, very different. You know, it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's less raucous, it's less vulgar, it's less Mediterranean, and it's more a kind of elegy to the Western. And I think that Bertolucci and Argento brought that to the project. It, like, it reminds me of a western if Visconti had made it, you know. Um, uh, uh, you know, the Leopard had had come out, and um, I can't remember whether Death in Venice had come out yet by then. But um, you know, slow, lyrical, nostalgic, uh, very stylish to look at. Um, it has. It's like a Visconti western, only I'd sacrilege to say it, and I don't like they don't like me saying this in Italy. But I think Leone was a better storyteller than Visconti. You know, he knew his audience better, and he. He, um, he could surprise audiences and tell a story in a much more uh, um, effective way than Visconti. So he takes Visconti's visuals but adds it to this great flair for storytelling. I think one thing about Leon, you could call him a voluptuary of cinema. He loved cinema, almost in a sensual way. And Once Upon a Time in the West is a kind of homage to the, what cinema can achieve at its most kind of beautiful and lyrical and all enveloping it's it's almost like a a tactile sensual experience and and leone was the most extraordinary man he knew his films so well you know i remember once chatting to him about uh, the magnificent seven and he, he couldn't quote lines of dialogue because first of all he didn't speak english very well but also he'd seen a lot of these films dubbed into italian but what he could remember was every visual of the film so he'd say oh yes Uh, The Magnificent Seven. We start with a long shot of the Great Plains, you know, and the music. And then in the first sequence, we have close-up Eli Wallach. We have medium shot of the horses arriving. He had a complete recall on the grammar of these films and the cuts and the kind of visual progression of them, which was unique. I've never met anybody, actually, who could remember whole sequences of films in terms of the shots, you know, rather than the dialogue. And um, I think... Once Upon a Time in the West is a kind of homage to the visual sophistication of the Western. And of course, he's casting also. You know, there's Henry Fonda, who played young Mr. Lincoln and Wyatt Earp in My Darling Clementine, and who was on record as saying when he played young Mr. Lincoln, it was for him like playing Jesus. And, uh, and the, 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 the Grapes of wrath and all those films, blue-eyed hero of so many films in Hollywood. And you cast him as a psychopathic child killer. And, uh, and and in fact, um, uh, uh, Henry Fonda reminisced about uh, his first meeting with Leone. He said, you know, he arrived at uh, Fumicino Airport in Rome with brown contact lenses and stubble, so that he looked like John Wilkes Booth or something, a real baddie, because he'd read the script and he realised he was the baddie. And Leone, through an interpreter, said to him, "I want those blue eyes. I want you to be very clean shaven. And in that first scene, I want you to come out of the the bushes wearing a long." canvas coat and the music swells up and the dust and you can't quite see your face and an entire family has been massacred and they're all lying there and the camera is level with your shoulders and you can see this cheek puffed out with a wad of tobacco and the camera goes round at shoulder height and he said I want all the audience in unison to say Jesus Christ it's Henry Fonda (laughs) which is exactly what happened so all the casting in that film is extraordinary it's a kind of european approach to casting where you don't cast someone uh, necessarily for their performance but for what they bring to the film you know mark twain once said um in america you're famous for your latest work in europe you're famous for your greatest work and in europe they have very long memories about movie actors you know lee van cleef who'd appeared for about 10 seconds in every western of the 1950s they remembered how he walked they remembered how he looked and they thought, yep, we could remake him as an Italian-Western hero. It's a, it's a very distinctive approach to casting. It's the cinematic memory they bring with them is the reason you're casting them, not because they, they've been to actor school, you know? And, and that's a very European approach, I think. And Leone, one thing he was absolutely brilliant at was casting. I mean, this is the man who, in a sense, discovered Clint Eastwood uh, as a movie star. But, you know, and, and uh, turned, turned Lee Van Cleef into a star when he was about to retire from the movie business, and cast Henry Fonda against type as a baddie, which was a huge risk, really, but uh, but it works.
2: How did Bronson come to be cast?
7: And they only had been trying to cast him uh, from the very beginning. In fact, um, he almost went through all the Magnificent Seven in, in sending the script to for a fistful of dollars. So he sent the script to James Coburn, and uh, Coburn was too expensive. I forget what the figure was, but I think um, $20,000 was too dear in 1964. So they couldn't afford James Coburn as the lead. They sent it to Henry Fonda, and his agent never showed it to him. Uh, He thought it was so bad. Uh, And they sent it to Charles Bronson. But it was translated, apparently, in this rather stilted English. You know, which way to the Hill of Boots? (laughs) That sort of thing. And uh, anyway, Bronson turned down on it, and uh, Kenisa gets it for $15,000. And he also got sent the second script, apparently, uh, Charles Bronson, where he, he could have been offered the Lee Van Cleef part as the older man, the colonel. But that didn't work out. So Leonie had been nibbling at him. He loved his face. He said his face reminded him, it's not a very complimentary thing to say, but his face reminded him of Mount Rushmore. <laughs> that this, it's like it's carved out of granite, you know, this this great visage of Charles Bronson. And he, he reckoned that... Um, John Sturgis had used Bronson brilliantly in uh, the Magnificent Seven and uh, the Great Escape, but most people hadn 't really learned how to use Bronson. they, they cast him as uh, always as either a Native American or a Mexican with a funny accent and he's in the background. but Sturgis had realized this had the makings of an action hero, and of course, once upon a time in the West turns Bronson into a huge hero in in Europe. he makes a whole string of films and the late 60s in Europe and uh, he becomes a megastar there before he, he, he goes back to the States as a megastar. I think it was the face and I mean this, this Mount Rushmore type face and bringing, bringing the Magnificent Seven with him. I mean there's a moment in uh, Once more a Time in the West where he's sitting there whittling on a piece of wood waiting for Henry Fonda to come for the final showdown, which is straight out of The Magnificent Seven, where he sits there whittling on a piece of wood, making a flute for the little Mexican children. Do you remember? Uh, Bernardo O'Reilly. Well, he's half Mexican, half Irish. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a reference there, too. He brings The Magnificent Seven to the party. And uh, and at last, you know, he said yes. And, uh, and Bronson, who didn't give many interviews, said, you know, he didn't pick the right one. Because, uh, whereas Fisner Dollars so, had had a huge effect on Clint career. Um, I, 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 you know, in terms of Hollywood, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West wasn't a very successful movie, but uh, a bit like Coburn, when Coben finally worked for Leone on Duck Sucker, and he didn't pick the right one.
2: <laughs> How about Robards? He's such an interesting face too.
7: In the script for Once Upon a Time in the West, um, Cheyenne is much more of a uh, Mexican sort of Eli Wallach character, uh, Cheyenne Gutierrez. And uh, he's obviously meant to be a sort of Tuco character initially, and then uh, they went to New York and saw Robards on the stage, I think in a Eugene O'Neill play, uh, and decided to cast him. And it is—it's—it's it, it's odd. I mean, a very theatrical actor from a great theatrical family, who'd made uh, you know several movies, but nothing, nothing like this. It was a head of a risk. I think it comes off. I mean, some people don't don't find his performance the weak link because he's not very credible as a kind of. Um, Fast shooting bandit uh, and so on. He's too cerebral, uh, but I think I think it's a, a great performance because it, it it he's sort of um, it's a kind of ironic performance. It's as if he, he's sort of commenting on himself throughout the film uh, that he realizes this is a bit of a cliche, but let's go with it. And he's got wonderful eyes. Um, these great scenes where you have close up of Cheyenne looking around the room and the music changes register as his eyes look to the right and look to the left. He seems to, he seems to be very good at that. When bobby kennedy shot was that 67 because uh, there's a story that um while they oh, 68 while they were shooting uh, once one time in the west in spain the news came through that i think it was bobby kennedy had been shot and and of course it was bobby kennedy who popularized the phrase the good the bad and the ugly in american political parlance he gave a speech a famous speech where he refers to the good the bad and the ugly of american politics so there was a kind of connection anyway Robards was deeply moved by this and uh, uh, and got Leone to shut down the production for a day of mourning while they were shooting in Spain. So he he was um, he was quite an influence, actually, in, in the making of the film. But I think he works. He's different. He's not a physical actor. He's, he's, um, he's a cerebral actor and a dialogue sort of actor. But uh, I think it works as the romantic bandit, this rather yearning romantic bandit. The character, the name, came from a film called The Desperados with Glenn Ford, where he plays a character called Cheyenne, which is confirmed to me by Argento, but the character comes from Warlock, which was uh, Edward Dmytryk's film Warlock, which is one of Leone's favourite westerns. It's not often written about, but has Henry Fonda as a gunslinger and Richard Widmark as this sort of rather reluctant. Shootist who has, you know, who who sort of yearns to settle down but is always called out and finds that he can't. So they base the character of Cheyenne on Warlock and the name on the Desperados. So there's a lot of movie history in that character as well.
2: It all sort of plays into this postmodernist thing that you've been talking about.
7: Yeah, well, yes. I mean, at that moment, you know, all these European filmmakers are um, discovering Hollywood, as it were. I mean, remember too that um, after the Second World War, in the continent of Europe, most Hollywood movies had been banned by the Mussolini regime and by the Nazis in Germany. And they arrived in an absolute flood in 1946-47, because you got not just all the post-war movies, but the flood of 1941-45 to 45 movies as well. And so that generation of filmmakers who in the 40s were in their teens uh, absolutely overdosed on Hollywood at a very impressionable age and Leone has written about this. You know, you could watch Hollywood movies morning, afternoon, evening and night and never repeat yourself for about six years. And that, I think, had a big, big effect on on their their formation as filmmakers. So they're sort of um, understanding Hollywood, loving Hollywood, getting Hollywood out of their system and treating Hollywood as the kind of benchmark. Yes, the one to beat, you know, uh, it's it's not difficult to make it big on the European art circuit. But let's, 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 uh, let's look towards Hollywood and make movies on their ground. Let's make a, a homage to Republic Pictures like Breathless or let's make a homage to Hitchcock um, uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, and also they're writing about these things. So, you know, um, uh, Chabrol writes about Hitchcock in Cahiers Cinema and then has a crack at making movies which are a kind of homage to him. Leonie wrote an article about John Ford, a homage to John Ford, which is a really interesting article where he, he talks about how, you know, that Ford also cast Fonda against type. You've got John Wayne contrasted with Henry Fonda. And Henry Fonda is the, the sort of West Point man who plays it by the book and is deeply unpleasant as a character and leads his platoon into a massacre. And uh, John Wayne sort of covers for him. And, uh, and, and he only says, yeah, I mean, Ford, although he cast Fonda as young Mr. Lincoln and in The Greats of Roth. He saw the dark side of him as well, so he cast him in that cavalry film. There's an interesting piece of writing. So they're writing about these people and reflecting on them, uh, as well as making movies, which are a kind of homage to them. And it's a real European moment. And in a way, it's the the origins of treating cinema as films about films. You know that when I grew up, I was taught film is about the real world. You know, the camera cannot lie. The camera points at the world, and documentary and newsreel. And realistic, is that film realistic, was the great benchmark, you know. But they're making movies that have nothing to do with the real world. They're movies about movies. And I think, um, you know, the the French philosopher, without getting too heavy about it, the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard referred to Leone as the first postmodernist film director who made popular films. And I think that's probably true, that, you know, the first to make films which only make sense, that's films about other films rather than
2: films about the real world. Getting back to the casting a bit, I've always been fascinated by the casting of Lionel Stander because he wasn't a big actor, but he seems bigger than the role that he was in.
7: Of course, he'd been blacklisted. There's a book to be written. I I don't think I've got the energy, but there's a book to be written about the blacklist and the Italian Western or the European Western because quite a lot of American actors, stroke writers, stroke directors were wandering around Paris and Rome in the early 1960s. Uh, Lionel stander among them and they'd they'd sort of appeared in a few european films and developed a bit of a reputation over there that i don't know whether frank wolf was blacklisted but he went over to um uh he he went over to europe in the early 60s and made um salvatore giuliano for francesco Rosi, um and is thanked on the credits for his very particular contribution to that movie so he's uh, a sort of slightly left-wing figure who's wandering around Europe. I don't know if he's blacklisted, but, but Stander was. And the man who did the English dialogue, Mickey Knox, he did the English dialogue of uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West, so all those great lines, there are two kinds of people in the world, my friend, those who loaded guns and those who dig or people like that have got something inside, something to do with death in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, is Mickey Knox, translating the Italian. He was blacklisted. These people had a bigger reputation in Rome and Paris than they did in Hollywood. And I think Lionel Stander, um, uh, you know, I I think he was a bigger name in Europe than he was in in, in Hollywood, which which is why he got this rather larger than life part. But it is interesting because quite a lot of blacklistees hovered around Samuel Bronston in Spain, where he was making all these gigantic epics at the time. And there's one or two quite left-wing westerns made by blacklistees sort of getting their own back on Hollywood and I think there's a story to be told there which hasn't really been told before which is you know as I say the impact of the blacklist on radical westerns in the early 19- early to mid 1960s and Mickey Knox is, is interesting He, 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 uh, he t- I did an interview with him and he told me that uh, I think he's no longer with us actually but um, a few years ago I did an interview with him and he told me that um, uh, he was having supper one night and the novelist Graham Greene was at another table. And Green walked over to Mickey Knox and said, "You're the man who did the wonderful dialogue in Once Upon a Time in the West," and it made his year so, to have this great novelist actually recognizing that fact. Uh, you yeah, know, it's nice actually. Well, amazing. And Graham Green came to the National Film Theatre, and I was present actually. And it's one of these Q and A sessions, must have been in the 80s and uh, in the 70s. And when asked what was his favourite movie, he said, "Once Upon a Time in the West." And so the interviewer, rather incredulous, said, what? You can't mean the same movie. It's the only Western. And Graham Greene said, I just love the pace of it. I love the fact that it dares to be slow. I can't bear this sort of machine gun delivery of most films where you can't follow the dialogue and everyone talks over each other and there's so much ambient sound. He said it was like a dance of death that lasts about three hours and I just loved the pace and the style of it. And, uh, and the audience was saying, what? i better go and see it again. <laughs> uh, but it's nice that he said that.
2: When the film was chopped up for American release, and it sounds like British release too, what was cut out?
7: The whole of the Lionel Stander scene, uh, Claudia Cardinale uh, um, gets in a buggy at um, uh, Flagstaff, Flagstone, and um, trundles into the desert. We see Monument Valley cut she arrives at Sweetwater at the farm. So the whole of that sequence of the uh, of the wayside, the way station with Lionel Stander, Stander still appeared on the credit uh, on the credits. And I thought, when is he appearing? <laughs> he never appeared. Quite a lot on the train with Mr. Morton disappeared, and at the end, the death of Cheyenne. So Cheyenne leaves the uh, Sweetwater and goes over the hill. Uh, harmonica follows him. Cut. Harmonica arriving away with the body slumped over a horse and you think, who the hell is that? And uh, there were some bits in the middle as well, but it was um, very odd, actually. They just, uh, Instead of pruning the whole film, which I think would have been impossible because of the soundtrack, they simply lopped out entire sequences and hoped that the continuity wouldn't be too much of a problem.
2: When did the restored version get shown?
7: I think it was first shown in the early 80s in England. A 70mm print, actually, was in circulation. and was shown at... The Empire Cinema, Leicester Square, in the full version, absolutely blissful. And then the DVD started coming out, uh, sorry, video started coming out, videotape, and then DVD, which was the full version. And now uh, it's actually quite difficult to get hold of the cut version, a little bit like Once More Time in America. Where it's very, very difficult to get hold of the original uh, lad company, Warner Brothers' cut of Once More Time in America, you know, where they... They cut about an hour and a half out of it, and you can only get the the, the uncut version. But um, yeah, no, it was uh, it was very odd. We didn't know what we were missing, but we did know that it was a very odd, choppy film, and also that you know the whole the way it was constructed, like a sort of jigsaw puzzle, where everything actually made sense, but it didn't necessarily make sense in the right order and things happen that remind you of something earlier in the film. It was beautifully constructed. So to actually take whole chunks out of it uh, really made a nonsense of the film in retrospect. But we didn't know that. We didn't know what was missing. Except that Charles Brunson... Oh, there's another scene that's missing that was missing from the Italian print. When Charles Brunson... uh, Okay, he's at the station, he kills the three people, he gets up, he walks off. There is a whole sequence where he's in town and the sheriff, played by Keenan Wynne, comes in with his deputies and beats him up for all sorts of complicated reasons. So when we next see Charles Bronson at the way station in the swing station in, in Monument Valley, he's got a huge scar on his cheek. How did that get there? Because there's a whole sequence. I've got all the stills for it. I, I don't think the sequence has survived, but I mean, Keenan Wynn is in big letters on the, on the credits and all he appears in is in the auction scene. In the but actually he had a much bigger part and, um, this continuity errors actually even in the complete version. What happened was that Leone, once he found his style, this very he called it indirect cinema. You never say anything quite directly. You you take your time and you everything becomes you know the length of the shot and the relationship between shots is is uh, the whole pace of it is very very different to Hollywood pacing, much much slower and much more lyrical and much less. Much more oblique. But having done that, um, apparently, when he was shooting the the sequence of the McBain family massacre in Sweetwater, he phoned up Sergio Donati, the screenwriter, and he said, uh, "If I go on like this, the film's going to last four or five hours. I need help." So Donati had to go down to Spain and cut various sequences in the script even before they were filmed, and rework some of the others because we only was realizing that when he went for this approach to storytelling, it really did take its time. And a lot of the problems that really came to a head with Once Upon a Time in America were already there when he was making Once Upon a Time in the West, that that his particular style and approach and um, uh, sense of pacing meant that his movies were going to get longer and longer and longer. And, and eventually, that would end in tears. And of course, with Once Upon a Time in America, it did. You know, where he delivered a film that was about an hour and a half longer than the length he was contracted to deliver, and he secretly hoped that they'd turn it into two parts, like 1900 by Bertolucci, but that had been a disaster financially, so no one was going to make a two-part movie, but he hoped they would, and when they didn't, they decided to just cut away, and so um, it was, um, you know, whole chunk, I mean, you know, literally an hour and a half of it disappeared. But the signs were there already and once in Once More Time in the West that he, he was, as he got confidence as a filmmaker, he certainly took his time in telling a story. And that that had consequences.
2: Now the idea of splitting one film into two or even three is almost commonplace.
7: No, it's true. Or, or Peter Jackson, you know, whose films get longer and longer. I mean, you know, it's a hell of an achievement to make three full length movies out of a hobbit. <laughs> I mean, the story is only about 50 pages long. But there you go. It can be done, but you no, know, quite. It is more compelling. And but in those days, you know, most movies were crisp 90
2: minutes. Leone did the Dollars trilogy. He did Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America. Would there have been another Once Upon a Time film, or was that Duck You Sucker?
7: You can't tell with Leone. You know, he didn't um, plan the Dollars films as a trilogy, but in retrospect, described them as a trilogy, and added that scene at the end of The Good, and the Ugly, where Clint Eastwood picks up the show from a dying soldier, and so there's a kind of visual link with the poncho from the first two films. Um, but he, uh, the same thing happened with Ducky Sucker, where he said that his favorite title for that movie was the French title, Once Upon a Time, The Revolution. Il était une fois la révolution. Where he said what he was doing was, once upon a time in the West, took the Western and treated it as a kind of fairy tale and collided it with the historical reality that a ducky sucker took the Mexican, the myth of not the real Mexican revolution, but the myth of the Mexican revolution in the movies, films like Viva Zapata and Juarez and, um, Uh, Viva Villa and those sort of films the myth of the Mexican Revolution the myth of the sombrero and turned that inside out and collided it with the fairy tale so Once Upon a Time the Revolution and then he took the gangster film and did the same thing in Once Upon a Time in America and he gave a lot of interviews where he said that that was deliberate but I'm not sure it was I don't think they were conceived as a trilogy but certainly I mean it's a great title and of course it's been pinched so often since if I see another movie which is Once Upon a Time in China Once Upon a Time in Albania once upon a time you know they're all over the place because it's such a clever idea you know the movie's ability to tell fairy tales to, to put over myths and then but also it's realism of how you can have the realism of history colliding with the myths of the fairy tale it's perfect for almost all films that are made could be called Once Upon a Time and a lot of them are so uh, I, I, I do think though that the middle film would have benefited if it had been called Once Upon a Time The Revolution 'Cause duck you sucker. Leone convinced himself that everyone went round in California saying duck you sucker. You know, I may be naive, but I've never heard anyone in the United States ever use that phrase. But he convinced himself that it was in common parlance and that everyone would immediately see it. It is in, in, in America in, in Italy, there's this phrase la Testa Collione, which literally translated means keep your head down, comma, balls, right? <laughs> It's a slightly odd thing to say to someone, but it basically means get out of the way, keep your head down, don't get involved, Julia testa, and, and that's, that's a quite a good title. You know, keep your head down, because in a way, the movie is about how if Rod Steiger had kept his head down and hadn't got involved in the revolution, you know, all sorts of horrible things wouldn't have happened to him. So keep your head down, don't get involved. But once upon a time, the revolution is a great title, I think, and um, you know, there is a lot about the myth of the Mexican Revolution in that film, and. Uh, um, so I think it's a shame and I think well as you know United Artists changed the title halfway through release Which is very unusual. It's released as Ducky Sucker and it turns into a fistful of dynamite halfway through first release in in the hope that audiences will uh, mistake the word dynamite for dollars <laughs> And think they're watching a fistful of dollars, you know, they, they're trying to link it to a fistful of dollars in, in, in the title and um, uh, You know and audiences were very disappointed. I've got two lobby cards from the first release where they're identical lobby cards and one says ducky sucker and the other one has an overstick, a fistful of dynamite <laughs> in in a sort of a desperate attempt to get an audience. I'm afraid it didn't work under either title.
2: I've always been curious about the gunshots in Leone's Westerns. Was that sound effect particular to him?
7: I asked Sergio Donati, the scriptwriter about this and he said I wondered if they were electronically simulated because they have this strange quality that isn't like gunshots in Hollywood Western and in fact The restorations of the Leone films on DVD have ruined the gunshots, that in reprocessing them for stereo and things, they sound much more like traditional gunshots, and I think that's a great shame. Apparently, Leone went off to a quarry, and for pistols, fired a big gun into a dustbin, (laughs) and for rifles, sort of reconstructed a nuclear explosion. (laughs) He wanted a really big sound so that everything, like everything about the film, it'd be larger than life and pumped up. But they're real recordings of amplified gunshots rather than electronically simulated. And uh, it is a very particular quality. I don't know whether it started with Leone, but uh, it's a particular quality to the Italian Western generally that the gunshots sound like, you know, someone pulls out a Colt 45, and uh, it sounds like a double-barreled shotgun. All the better for it, I think. (laughs) And of course, Leoni was a bit of a firearms buff as well. So uh, you get you usually get a scene where you know somebody takes a gun to pieces, or you get a close-up of a, a, a rather unusual piece of um, firearm. Um, and he, he 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 enjoyed he enjoyed his firearms. I think, in fact, for this exhibition that uh, opens in a couple of weeks, i managed to get in touch with the family of. Mr. Corridori, who supplied all the firearms to these things, and uh, he's found all the original guns from, these, from the movies, which is great fun. And uh, do you remember that scene in The Good Bone, The Ugly, where Clint Eastwood is taking his Navy coat to pieces and cleaning it, and, uh, and, and the baddies are coming up the steps, and he's got to reassemble the gun and get all the bullets in the chamber in time for them to come through the door so he can shoot all of them? That was sort of lovingly looking at the details of a Colt Navy taken to pieces and things. That
2: was, um, that was very Leone. I always love Tuco when he's listening to the gun.
7: Yes, going to the shop and and uh, piecing together a gun from all the bits of uh, his favourite guns. I know it's um, no. There's more of an emphasis on firearms in in some ways than than the than the American western at that time. You know that he um, would rather took the guns for granted. Most people used Colt forty five, whereas in the Italian western you get strange firearms and sometimes hidden strange—you know—hidden inside a banjo or a church organ or inside someone's boot in Once Upon a Time in the West. Leone's father was a great collector of antiques, and uh, when he hit hard times, his father, Vincenzo Leone, who went by the stage name of Roberto Roberti. Who, who was a director of silent films as well as an actor in silent films, fell out with the Mussolini regime in the 1930s and was under house arrest and sold a lot of the family collection of antiques. Leone was a great collector of antiques and the, the physical feel of objects, I think, intrigued him. You know, he'd haunt antique markets and, uh, in fact, in his apartment, in, in his house in Rome, you know, there was a Di painting on the wall. There was a, a Magritte painting and there was all this wonderful 18th century silver. Uh, he loved old objects. And I think that gets transposed into the Wild West in these films, where there's a big emphasis on sort of objects, you know, things that were lying around in the West. Um, uh, clutter, you know, like the interior of Sweetwater, with, its, um, uh, with the open fire and the, and the coffee pot and all these things on the kitchen table. There's a big emphasis on objects. And that, I think, comes through Leone's interest in, his father's interest in antiques, which he inherited
2: I think you're the first knight that we've ever had on the show.
7: Yes, I didn't get knighted for Spaghetti Western Studies, <laughs> That would be something.
2: How did that come about?
7: Uh, I was the boss at a, a, a big art school in London called the Royal College of Art for many years and um, uh, and have been very involved in, in arts administration and also making a lot of television programs, trying to put over uh, the arts to you know the widest possible public. And so I got my knighthood in the year 2000 for... Services to Art and Design Education. It was a great surprise. A brown envelope arrived in the post, which I thought was from the Inland Revenue. So I didn't open it for a while. <laughs> and then I opened it and it said, uh, we've decided to make you a knight. Will you accept? They'd like to know in advance whether you'll accept because they don't want any embarrassment on the day. And I said, yeah, no, I'm thrilled to It's It's great. So you go to Buckingham Palace and you get down on one knee and the Queen gets this very large sword and places it on your shoulder and chants to you and you feel like Errol Flynn in the Seahawk <laughs> on the on, on the deck of the golden hind and you can almost hear the trumpets and sort of Flora Robeson as Queen Elizabeth or something or Betty Davis and she then says arise Sir Christopher and it's just like one of those Elizabethan <laughs> epics and um, no it's, it's rather, rather wonderful I'm not quite sure of its value they say that it gets you a better table in a restaurant but I haven't put that to the test <laughs> But uh, but when I, the one thing that does happen is that you're allowed to choose your crest. And uh, I spent a lot, a lot of time, because I was working in an art school, I got the students, the graphic design students, working on the crest. And I wanted, you know, references to all sorts of things, including spaghetti westerns. And so my crest, uh, in fact, um, well, there's lots of things in it, but uh, down the side of the crest, instead of ribbons, are two pieces of tagliatelle. And along the bottom is my Latin motto. I'll give it to you in Latin, but uh, I'll then translate it. In Latin, it goes, per de scellus fecit mihi diam perficias. Translated, it means, Go ahead, punk, make my day. I think I'm the only knight in history since the Middle Ages to have chosen his motto from a Clint Eastwood movie. So it's all in there, it's all in there, it, but uh, future scholars will have to scratch their heads and work that one out.
2: We have a bird sitting on top of it. What's the bird?
7: It's a dodo. The uh, unofficial motto of the Royal College of Art is um, the dodo and the phoenix. You know, they come in as dodos and they leave as phoenixes, these very creative people with the fire of creativity underneath their tail feathers. And so I thought it would be very nice to have a dodo perched on the top of the crest with a goblet of fire in his hand, so Harry Potter style, and he's about to drink the goblet and turn into a phoenix. And the Herald said to me um, in the College of Heralds, there has never been a dodo on top of a crest in the entire history of heraldry since the Black Prince in the Middle Ages, because it's extinct. And it's the end of the line. I said, yeah, I love that. Let's have a dodo. So I'm the only person ever to have a dodo about to drink the Goblet of Fire and turn himself into a phoenix. And I've got the the owl um, of history, you know, Twilight, horror movies, setting Sun, Um, I've got sprocket holes going across across the, uh, honestly, it goes on. In in heraldry, um, the bastard line of a family and the illegitimate line of a family, the, uh, the ribbon on the crest goes from right to left, and the legitimate line goes from left to right. So I said, I want to symbolize the illegitimacy of all my research interests. Spaghetti westerns horror hammer films you name it i wanted to go from right to left and the, the herald said are you sure i said yes so i've got sprocket holes going from right to left slanted across this shield with the the owl of history and the dodo on the top and his telly telly down the side and clint eastwood originally i had two little holes in the crest with blood coming out of them but uh, uh, that seemed a little bit too much <laughs> So I, I, when when people see this in the future, they'll think, "What the hell was, <laughs> what was this chap interested in?" But uh, it'll give them uh, an amusing afternoon working it all out.
2: What are you working on currently?
7: Oh, several things. I've got a book actually coming out uh, next week called "The Yellow Peril: Dr. Fu Manchu and the Rise of China Phobia." It's all about um, 200 years of anxiety about China in film, popular culture, uh, uh, photography, poetry. Literature and everything else from about 1800 to the present day. I've, I've invented this word, China phobia, uh, which is, um, you know, anxiety, fear of China. And uh, it's really, uh, I've been watching a lot of movies with Chinese bad guys <laughs> uh, over over the last uh, few years. And that's coming out next week, anyway. And I, I mean, what with Hong Kong and various other things, I think it'll attract quite a lot of attention. Then in the spring, I've got a book coming out about the design of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, the, the man who designed all the hardware in that film is a man called Harry Lang, who wasn't a production designer at the time. He, was, he worked at NASA uh, as a visualizer of future space concepts. And um, anyway, Harry's son found, uh, Harry's passed on, uh, his son found in the garage a suitcase with over a 1,000 drawings. Of all the hardware in the 2000, but no one's ever seen before, and so I'm bringing out the 2001 file, which is about Harry Lang and the designs of 2001, with the entire archive printed in it. Good fun. That'll be good fun, I think. And the the, the Tom Toms have started on the web already. People are getting quite excited. And finally, in the summer, I finished I finished all three actually, a big big book for Taschen, the big German publisher, on Ken Adam, the production designer of Dr. Strangelove, the early Bond films, Barry Lyndon, etc. And um, it's uh, Ken Adam, The Complete Works, uh, a book. on. I'm getting very interested in film design, actually. And in fact, uh, you know, getting back to Leone for a second, the, um, you know, the the role of Carlo Simi, the production designer, has not really had its just reward. I don't think it's, uh, you know, uh, Carlo Simi designed both the sets and the costumes for the Dollars trilogy. He was an architect in Rome. He'd done a couple of films, but nothing big. And rather like Leone and Morricone, I mean, it was a key relationship, creative relationship. You know, Simi's buildings, which again are larger than life, huge interiors. It's Western architecture, but pumped up, you know? And the same way, these stylish costumes of the coats and the ponchos, that's all Carlos Simi. And so I think he's, he's an important figure. And I, I'm getting increasingly interested in production design as an element in filmmaking. There isn't enough written about it, I don't think. You know, the, the directors have ruled the roost for a long, long time. And I think it's about time, let's hear it for the designers as well.
1: Thanks to Sir Christopher Frayling for taking the time to talk to us. You can find links over where you can buy his books and find out more information about him at our website, projection-booth.com. So we're talking about Once Upon a Time in the West on this episode. And we know that the film was influenced by many Westerns and then has also gone on to influence many other Westerns that have come out. And uh, one of those, according to you, Mike, is The Quick and the Dead from our uh, fellow Detroit native. Mr. Sam Raimi.
2: I know that you just recently rewatched The Quick and the Dead. Do you see why I said that it was uh, such an influence uh, that Once Upon a Time in the West had on it? Well,
1: the thing for me is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is about 12 years old, and uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing to remember him as that young. I remember seeing this in the theater when it came out. I was in high school at the time, and um, I, I had a good time watching it because it is so over-the-top in style that <laughs> That <laughs> uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, Sam being the king of the Dutch angles, and it is just amazing how many, you know, tilted angles there are in this film.
2: And some of those great camera tricks and everything. And just, yeah, the the uh, sun coming through, the bullet wounds and stuff. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, there, there were definitely some, uh, some great camera angles in this. And I can't say that the movie necessarily blew me away when I saw it all those years ago. I also saw it at the theater. Um, but it... I don't know. It it was nice to see somebody trying a Western and trying to have a little bit of of fun with it. I mean, right around the time, we were getting a little resurgence with like the Unforgiven and stuff. Young gods.
1: The one connection between the two films is Woody Strode, who in the beginning, uh, one of the first people you meet when Sharon Stone's character rolls into town is Woody Strode making coffins
2: yeah which was a nice little touch but for me it's the uh, the whole flashback sequence that we have going on and it's it's definitely not as mysterious as it was In Once Upon a Time in the West um, We pretty much know right Off the bat, oh Sharon Stone's got Some problems with Gene Hackman And then the flashbacks Come a lot sooner and they come a lot um, Faster, more information I mean, Sam had A whole lot of less time to play With than uh, Leone did in his Western, but yeah, but before we Know it, we are seeing this kind of Play out that it was almost The same thing, it wasn't uh, Um, Sharon Stone uh, with Gary Sinise. It was so weird to see Gary Sinise in this little role, but it was with Gary Sinise standing on her shoulders. It was uh, him standing on a table and her trying to shoot the rope to to free him. And I, I, Appropriately Laughed the first time that I Saw this when she ends up shooting him in the Head rather than shooting the (laughs) rope Um, And I did the same thing The last time I watched it too it just Ends up funny to me that She is just in this very stressful situation And ends up shooting her own father Right in the head well
1: there's a couple of interesting Pieces in here in terms of casting I mean obviously Leo before He you know became Leo I mean he was kind of I mean This is before Romeo and Juliet which I think Kind of put him on the map uh, for most teenage girls but um the the other casting is good i mean lance henrickson as the the gunfighter who has like the most outlandish you know um <laughs> clothing and that uh pencil mustache of his, and then uh, russell crowe before russell crowe really you know took off as well
2: yeah, this was 95 when this movie came out, and um, I had seen Leo, like, I can't remember if he did Gilbert Grape at this point or something. Yeah, I
1: think Gilbert Grape was the year before, and okay. around this time, I mean, there was a boy's life, and so, I mean, there was a few small things, and he had just come off of, uh, I, I know, the show with your uh, your favorite uh, actor and, and filmmaker, uh, Mr. Kirk Cameron, uh, Growing Pains.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot all about that. Um, yeah. So he was, uh, I said when I was rewatching this last week, I was like, well, I guess he does get older because Leo still, to me, has such a baby face and that he still looks like when I see him now, I'm like, oh, this guy looks like he's 12 years old. But apparently, no. He, uh, <laughs> he definitely did look younger when he was younger. He just looks younger in a different way, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah. And Sharon Stone, who was still so hot at the time, this is before she basically melted down and off of the radar for everybody so yeah kind of weird and, and it was great to see uh the one person who i wanted to see more of was keith david so i was really happy to have him in this one
1: keith david and anything is good i mean keith, oh, yeah. keith david reading the side of the cereal box would be make me happy
2: And to see him as this kick-ass gunfighter, I was just like, yeah, I want the Keith David movie. I want the uh, – Sergeant Cantrell was his character's name. I want to see the Sergeant Cantrell movie. What brought him to be and what was his uh, life before um, he showed up at this town? But uh, the other movie that I always think of uh, when I think of Once Upon a Time in the West, and it's absolutely bizarre. When you watch the DVD of this, there's all these different uh, documentaries, and there's different audio commentaries and all this. I mean, we talked about Chris Frayling, and he's all over the place when it comes to this. But one of the other filmmakers that we see a lot of is John Carpenter. But yet, I've never seen them actually say, John Carpenter is a really big fan of this movie, and he used it in uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13, fan- I, I still think that that's his best film. Um I absolutely love the movie. It takes a lot from Rio Bravo where you have, you know, the Claude Akins character who's, uh, you know, in jail and all these guys are coming to get him and trying to get him out and um, you know, John Wayne and um gosh, uh, Dean Martin uh and Ricky not Ricky Martin, Ricky Nelson and, and uh, those guys are fighting against the you know, incredible odds of all these gunfighters on the outside and trying to you know keep Claude Aikens in prison and it's kind of the same thing but with all these punks outside and trying to get in and try to kill the one guy that saw them and everything but you have the one character of uh, Napoleon who uh, they always talk about what a strange name he has and that he'll tell you what it means only at the point of dying and it's like they never make that connection on any of these once Upon a Time in the West documentaries of, like yeah he even used this line but I don't know. Another great film if you love Once Upon a Time in the West I, I would recommend Assault on Precinct 13 to anybody.
3: Why did you kill those men? Everybody asks me the same question.
1: I always tell them the same thing.
4: First time I ever saw a preacher, he said to me, son, there's something strange about you. You got something to do with
1: death. Being real young, I believed him. Turned out he was right. That's no answer. I thought it was pretty good. Where'd you get a name like Napoleon? I'll tell you sometime. When? Moment of
6: dying.
2: (laughs) I'm going to do my best to be there when your time comes. How about you, Joshua? Do you see any uh, influences of Once Upon a Time in the West on anything? Well, I mean, I would second, of course, uh,
3: Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, They have the similarities you mentioned. They also both have unexpected child murder, one of the best things you could hope for. I believe, I I don't remember where I read this, but I I believe I once read that uh, at one of John Carpenter's weddings, perhaps to Adrian Barbeau, the music that played was uh, one of the themes from Once Upon a Time in the West.
2: And we are talking about the original 1976 Assault on Precinct 13, not the remake, just FYI just so people realize that this was remade in a very bad way. So Napoleon Wilson, that was the character's name. And then, um, I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, unfortunately, like I mentioned before, it did fall under the scissors uh, before it got released. And gosh, this is one of those movies where it's just like you hear rumors of even longer cuts than the ones that are out there. You know, oh, yeah, well, you know, the, the, even when we're talking to Frailing, like the whole idea of Keenan Wynn having this longer role. I mean, Keenan Wynn is kind of wasted in this role as in one scene in Once Upon a Time in the West as the sheriff-slash-auctioneer. Lionel Stander, I mean, I think his part was big enough, but I could have seen more of him. But, you know, I've heard, oh, yeah, well, when Leone died, they found this five-hour cut of it. And it's like, okay, guys, I I don't know if a five-hour cut of Once Upon a Time in the West exists, but, you know, I'm sure that there are longer cuts, there are longer scenes and everything. It definitely got slightly butchered i mean to me to touch any frame out of this film is is butchering it but definitely not as bad as one of his subsequent films which was once upon a time in america that one just got mutilated when it was released theatrically and that one took years before people could see the original version of what he had in mind when it came to that film and um I don't know about you guys. Have have either of you seen Duck, You Sucker, a.k.a. A Fistful of Dynamite, a.k.a. Once Upon a Time, The Revolution?
3: Yeah, I've seen it, and it's probably my least favorite of his films, but that isn't to say that uh, there aren't obvious pleasures to be uh, had from watching it.
1: I have not seen it, and I've only seen bits of Once Upon a Time in America. The the one thing I find interesting is people want to label, and I don't know if this is just for connective tissue of titles uh, more than anything else, but there seems to be a camp out there in, in review land online that goes, okay, there's the Dollars trilogy, and then there's the Once Upon a Time trilogy. And do you find that those three films have
3: anything in common? I mean, the only thing that I can think of that is in common is I believe they all incorporate flashbacks into their structure, although you also do have that somewhat in the dollars trilogy with for a few dollars more. Um, So I I guess maybe they are both a little bit, uh, or or the all three are concerned a little bit with passage of time and how that affects the characters. But I, I wouldn't think of them as being tonally or thematically linked in any obvious way.
2: No, I don't necessarily see them linked that way either. I mean, the uh, once upon a time in, in America's, you know, taking a slice of life, and it's, but it's again, it's not doing this whole passage, you know, like uh, how I kept talking about with once upon a time in the West, where you're moving from. You know, the West as this mythic place to kind of the almost colonization of America kind of thing. I don't necessarily see that with either of the other films that uh, Leone did after that. So, uh, uh, yeah. And I've only seen Ducky You Sucker uh, all the way through once. And it was just almost, uh, it was painful for me. <laughs> I mean, I um, had this kind of love-hate relationship with Rod Steiger. And I've always wondered, like, you know, I posted on uh, Facebook a couple weeks ago, has he ever been not hammy in a role? And sometimes the hamminess adds to it, but... You know, there are very few roles where he wasn't just chewing up the scenery and he was completely chewing up the scenery as Juan Miranda. This. uh, Oh, my God. His accent was just impossible to get through in this film between his accent and James Coburn as the IRA uh, guy with this thick Irish accent. Oh, my goodness. It was just so difficult to watch. Duck, you sucker. But uh, Once Upon a Time in America, I've only seen that one twice, I think, uh, once in the theater, once on video, and I'm just about ready to watch it a third time. One of those movies where you look back and you go, oh, my God, William Forsythe had such a baby face. You know, We were talking about that a few weeks ago, Rob, when it came to Raising Arizona, and he's almost unrecognizable in Once Upon a Time in America.
1: Yeah, and plus you get a very young Jennifer Connelly. This is right before uh, Phenomena, which is the, the first film that I remember seeing her in where she's like super young.
2: Yeah, uh, super young everybody. I mean, James Woods looks uh, like he's about 15 years old in this one. But I have to say that if the sound of a ringing telephone bothers you, you should not see Once Upon a Time in America. <laughs> just letting you know.
1: Well, the one thing that's interesting on the Once Upon a Time in the West uh, audio commentary is John Melius, who said that Leone kept talking to him about adapting this book called The Hoods, which was the basis for Once Upon a Time in America, and he said he would have loved to have written it, but he got busy and the timing was never right. So, I like you know, there's, it's one of those sort of, I guess, missed opportunities. It would have been interesting to see, I guess, what Milius would have done with it.
2: Yeah, Milius and Leone, I can't even imagine what those two would have come up with. I mean, that just sounds like a marriage made in heaven to me.
1: All we could say for sure is that it would be masculine. I hope you have a masculine child.
2: All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview. Oh, let me say that again. Okay, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. <music>
4: Told me I was good in my life, two, two, twice. This raised today and dance, dance at the disco. Well, yeah. I mean, I like could dance with you, but you know, you're not my dream girl, nothing like that. Are
7: you as good in
4: bed as you are on that dance floor? Manjo, you make up with so many chicks; they think you got to dance for them.
3: He's very good, yeah. He's the best. Hey man, he's great. He's the king out there. John Travolta in
6: Saturday Night Fever. She can dance, you know that? She's got the
4: wrong partner, of course, but she she can dance. Okay, listen. I like it. We could dance together.
3: That's it. We could just dance together and uh,
7: nothing more, nothing personal.
4: short-lived kind of thing but i'm getting older you know you know i feel like i feel like you know so what i'm getting older does that mean like i can't feel that way about nothing left in my life you
6: know is that it
1: All right, get on your boogie shoes, get your hair all done correctly, don't let anyone touch it, and get ready to dance the night away as we talk about John Badham's disco classic, Saturday Night Fever, with some special guests, and we'll be joined in that discussion by the director of the film, Fifty-Four. Mark Christopher. But before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Josh Johnson. Now, Josh, it's been uh, just about a year since we spoke to you last when you were on our Zardoz episode. What's the latest, sir?
3: I'm working on a documentary uh, that I believe we've spoken about before called Canuxploitation, which is about the history and the legacy of Canadian exploitation films, the circumstances under which they were made, and the fact that they never really received their due either domestically or abroad. And I'm also working on a small-scale uh, documentary production that I can't really talk about yet, but that I think will be of uh, strong interest to
2: Projection Booth listeners. So what are some of your favorite exploitation films, Josh? I really
3: like Rituals. I really like Cronenberg's uh, The Brood. One of my favorite exploitation films is uh, the uh, classic uh, teen sex comedy Screwballs. And it's not necessarily one of the canonical titles, but uh, I'm really fixated uh, and have been for years on this straight-to-video Canadian film called Science Crazed. Those are all films that I highly recommend. The interesting thing about Canuxploitation, though, is that a lot of these films are perceived to be American films or Hollywood films. A lot of people don't even realize that some of this work was produced in Canada.
1: And I hear that there's like a whole division of uh, French-Canadian productions in there, isn't it?
3: Yeah, the Quebecois productions are particularly interesting. They were the first to kind of start doing adult films, what they call maple syrup porn. And this whole adult uh, film industry was kind of born out of the Quebec side of things. And then a lot of the uh, Cinepix films that came to define the Canoxploitation era were uh, started by uh, some Quebecois uh, film producers but uh, spiraled out into the English-speaking world and exported globally.
1: Sounds good. Is there anything up on that yet, or when do you think uh, that'll be together, and we'll hear more about it?
3: It's still an ongoing uh, process, so I don't have an end date in sight, but uh, I would say um, by this time next year, we'll, we'll probably be talking about it in terms of people having already seen it.
2: We'll have to pick out a very special uh, con- exploitation
3: title to cover with you. That would be great, and I'm sure we can come up with something that uh, will have a lot of discussion.
2: Après Ski? Is that the... Uh Canadian sex exploitation one. Yeah, you got it. All right, yeah. Ralph Elowani uh, wrote a nice piece about that filmmaker for Cashiers to Cinema. I think seventeen. So, if you haven't read that, I definitely recommend it. All right. So thanks again, Josh. We'll have links over to where folks can pick up their copy of Rewind This, your last film, um, not your last film, but your last film to hit video over at our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks to everybody for listening. I can't believe we've done 200 episodes now, more if you count the specials, but we'll just say 200 official episodes. And we are coming up on our fourth anniversary in just a few weeks here. And I just want to thank everybody for the support, feedback, and sharing the
6: love
4: Hello Mike and Rob of the Projection Booth this is Mike Murphy sending an mp3 for show number 200 which in the world of podcasting is quite the milestone so congratulations to the both of you I started listening to the Projection Booth probably about Two and a half years ago, you guys were oh maybe at around episode fifty. And when I first discovered you, I uh, I rifled back through your 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 first fifty episodes. I love the type of films you cover. I love the attention to detail that you guys put into the show. There's certainly a lot of passion. Um, that, that, you know, as a listener, I can very much appreciate. The thing with the show is that you guys cover all genres. You don't favor one over another. And this is one of the reasons why I keep coming back week after week. That and the high production quality that you guys put out week after week, along with the numerous guests you have on the show. I mean, it's one thing to be passionate about films and for you two to talk back and forth to each other. It's another thing to. Um, plan well ahead of time with the people you have on the show i will say that when i did start listening to the show you you were digging into titles i had never heard of and i just want to go down a quick list here of the titles that i i discovered while listening to the projection booth abar the first black superman the bad lieutenant rob highly recommended that to me after i listened to the show and i picked it up and wow what a, a crazy fun film with nick cage Oh, and then you folks did A Blast of Silence. I believe it was you folks who did that one. I'm not quite sure if it was you folks or those other folks. I caught clean flicks on, I think it was Netflix, shortly after I listened to your episode, and uh, what an interesting uh, documentary that turned out to be. Cruising, well, I, I was well aware of cruising. I saw it in the theaters back in the early 80s, and uh, you guys, by covering that Got me to repurchase or purchase the DVD for the first time about a year ago. Django, kill if you live, shoot. While I'm a big fan of Django, the original film, that's the music you're hearing in the background there. I had never heard of this so-called follow-up, and to this day, I'm not sure if it's a an actual sequel or not. But I think you had um, Kevin Grant on as your guest for that episode. Really, really an enjoyable episode. Jay- and then you guys turned me on to wing wing when you covered for your height only. Will Keenan has always been a favorite of mine, you know, being a, uh, a trauma uh, alumni and uh, yeah, the, your coverage of the ghastly love of Johnny Ox was excellent. Although I did happen to see the movie and I'm not entirely sure I actually finished it, but I uh, love some Will Keenan and it was good to hear him on your show. I'll just mention a couple more here. Uh, Last action hero, parts one and part two, two amazingly good episodes And then there was the, I believe it was you guys who did the Fright Night episode, which I think changed the course of the projection booth eventually. I could be wrong there, but I think that's the case. Anyway, let's talk about episode 200 real quick. So you guys are hitting 200, and you're doing Once Upon a Time in the West. As I'm sure your listeners are now aware, Uh, Sergio Leone directed this, and it was partially written by Dario Argento. I believe you guys have covered, uh, covered a couple of his films as well what makes this movie stand out more than anything else is the soundtrack I mean all spaghetti westerns have a very unique different sounding scores and in the case of this film it's scored by Ennio Morricone who has has got something like 500 credits on his IMDB I think he's been around forever and is still working in, in, in the industry today and this is just one of many spaghetti westerns that he put music to the music in this film is a character in itself uh, so you get guys like Henry Fonda, uh, Jason Robards, uh, Chuck Bronson, um, who else is in this, um, uh, Woody Strode's in it, uh, Jack Elam, um, uh, Frank, uh, I think it's Frank Wolfe. Just a great cast of characters in this film to go along with a really good story. And uh, the music is, again, a character uh, into itself. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll try to keep this short. I don't want to bore you too much, although I probably have gone on way too long. Congratulations on number two hundred, and thanks so very much for for bringing us uh, entertainment, free entertainment week after week. Uh, this show, along with another show I listen to, which is uh, the um, Outside the Cinema, inspired me to create my own show, which is Badass Boobs and Body Counts at counts dot com on iTunes and on Stitcher Smart Radio. It's kind of a, a dumbed down version of the Projection Booth and Outside the Cinema. So, uh, thank you very much for the inspiration. And here's to another 200 shows. We'll talk to you guys later.
6: This is Josh from Radio Drome, along with Cecil T. Robot from Radio Drome. Yes, correct. That's 1-0. We are here to congratulate Mike White on 200 episodes. Now, I've done 200 episodes in under a year, I've done way more than that. Cecil's done more than 200 episodes, so I don't know exactly what they're celebrating. It's not some great achievement. I mean, hell, 1201beyond.com has almost got over 1,000 episodes. I mean, Cecil, is 200 really something that Mike should be proud of? 200? Oh, God, I do 200 on my head, slackers. I just I don't get it, but congratulations anyway, Mike. You can have your little Pyrrhic victory. Just don't let it go to your head. But all of us at Radiodrome, we wish you a happy 200 more. I'm sure that'll take four years. So I do just want to point out, though, Mr. White, I've had you on Radiodrome far more than I've been on Projection Booth. And Cecil, have you ever been on Projection Booth? I've never even been asked to be on Projection Booth. My God, man. So... Happy 200 if you want to keep snubbing us for 200 more.